I'm, I'm going to boat. I'm going to I'm going to break the rules. Can I pull Ben Thompson up here? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, let me make you a mod too. Oh yeah, I can't do that. Here's Ben. I just like putting Ben on the spot. I don't know why. Oh, Ben's got kids in the background. Yeah, I actually joined the room on accident. But hey, go ahead. <laughs> I'm at my I'm at a, my son's baseball game. Oh, okay. Set your audio quality to high, Ben, so we can hear the kids screaming in the background. No, no, I don't think you want that. All right, how are we doing on the numbers here? One point three. That's pretty good. We can we can start. I mean, I, there's there's so many questions. Uh, I doubt we will get through most of them, and maybe like at some point we can just ask people in the audience to raise their hands. Sure, let's do can... it. Ben, awesome. you gotta you gotta mute out in the back while you're not talking. Um, yeah, I, I guess the, the the first question that a lot of people had is like, if success follows a power law distribution, how can we expect everyone to be a success in this economy? Which is kind of Similar to, you know, people say if everyone's rich, no one's rich, right? Like, how do you... Well, it's power law distribution on a particular thing, but you can have many power laws because you can have many different things you compete on, right? Someone can be a YouTube star. Someone else can be a YouTube comedy star. Someone else can be a YouTube comedy star in Taiwan. So there's many, many ways to slice things. Yes, only one person can be at the top of the leaderboards, but you can have many, many, many leaderboards. The internet creates millions and billions of niches and so you can have millions and billions of people and if each one is relatively authentic they can kind of do their own thing now in the sense that money is a single scorecard then yeah in the money game there will always be someone higher up than you and there will always be someone lower down than you but that's not necessarily a cause for alarm as long as you can meet your basic needs and it's making a good living for you and you're having fun doing it that's enough this, these are not zero-sum games the economy is not a zero-sum game the internet economy is certainly not a zero-sum game it's status hierarchies are zero-sum games. And if you're overly concerned with status hierarchy, sure, you'll never be happy, you'll never be satisfied. But if you're fine with the, the, the wealth hierarchy where you only need to hit a certain threshold and your basic needs are taken care of, then we can all get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more about the absolute number of people who are earning a living and getting by versus you know the people, how, much, how many people are making gazillions of dollars. Um, I mean, do you think that, like, you know, the competition, it is getting easier to get started, right? There are more newsletters and more podcasts and more all sorts of things. Uh, do you think it's, There's, it's harder to yeah. start today? There's always an advantage to being first in any given medium. Like, uh, Ben here is a poster child for the paid newsletter before there was such a thing as Substack. and was doing it. And, in fact, uh, you know, even on Substack, the people who started early, like the uh, Matt Taibis and the Glenn Greenwalds and the Matthew Iglesias of the world – and the Bern Hobart, they get an advantage because uh, when people first wander into that medium, uh, they look around, they're like, well, who's here? And so early adopters do get a leg up and later adopters will have to work more for it, but it doesn't mean they can't be successful. But there is an advantage to being sort of a connoisseur and figuring out which platforms may do well and adopting them early on. Clubhouse, an example. I, I, I've met people on Clubhouse with a million followers and, and I'm like, who the hell is this person? That's not even interesting. But they were on there early and they got into the user module or they kind of built a fan base early on when nobody else was around and available. And that, that pays off. It's a bet that they took and that bet paid off. Yeah. Yeah. How do, you, how, do you, how do you promote yourself today? Like if you were getting started from scratch today, how would you, how would you get started? I don't, I don't believe in self-promotion. I think that what the world is really craving is authenticity. Very, very few people are actually authentic. A lot of people are putting on a show or wearing a mask. And I think people deep down in their gut 
they know when someone's putting on a show and when they're not. And so I think people crave truth. And when they find someone who is speaking their truth and is being authentic and honest, that is naturally attractive. It doesn't necessarily pay dividends immediately. It doesn't necessarily pay dividends in a, in a way that can be easily measured and tracked, but it builds you the single most important thing, which is credibility. Credibility matters more than distribution. So a thousand true fans matters more than having a hundred thousand weak fans. There's a lot of people on Twitter who will say things that are like non-controversial and they're very careful and bland and they'll have a big follower count. But when you actually look at the engagement on their tweets and when you look at the actual how much people care or listen to those people, it's actually quite low. So I would argue that authenticity is a thing that you want uh, and that will lead to credibility, not follower accounts and not the metrics that Twitter and Clubhouse want you to play at. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to find out what you want to do. You have to, like, I think that is the hard part is actually figuring out what, what feels like play to you, right? I think that if you can find that out, then then you will be able to find a thousand true fans. I think if you're trying yeah, to promote you yourself. Yeah, you just, you just observe yourself. What is it that you do for fun? What do you enjoy doing? No one's going to be able to compete with you on that. And so the best way to figure that out is literally to observe your own behavior. And that takes time. You can't rush it, but you'll figure it out eventually. And if not, your friends and your family around you will. Yeah, I feel like most people, it's it's like when someone's, you know, a relationship isn't working out. I feel like everyone else figures it out before you do. That's right. You, 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 you have it. A, right. You have an idealized relationship that you desire that you're aiming for. And that's what you're holding in your head while they're seeing the reality of the actual relationship that you're in. Yeah. So people people know what you should be doing. Generally, it's it might be the thing that you're doing on Friday nights. Like, it, yeah, it, that's, that's interesting. So um, I would just add just I would just add yeah. two things to it. Naval said, uh, uh, first off, uh, it's kind of annoying me with Naval because it's funny how many people miss the idea that the internet inverts everything where yes, there's a power curve, but Naval already beat me to the point. There's infinite power curves available to be filled. But I think that leads to a, a way to dig deeper on that is there's lots of ways to differentiate. And everyone's like, oh, you have to differentiate by being the best writer or the most clever. And actually you can also differentiate just by virtue of which niche you fill. If no one is talking about a particular topic or no one is covering a particular subject, that by definition is differentiation, even if you're only average at it, just by being the only one doing it is a real opportunity, number one. And then number two, I push back a little bit on the whole passion or what you find fun, just because I think what is fun is being really good at something and you get very passionate about something if you spend all your time doing it. And there, I think there's a function where there's so many things to cover, so many things to talk about. And if you do it and you practice it and you get better and better and better at it, it you're going to turn around and suddenly realize you're super passionate about it at the same time. And so I think there's a like there's a bit where all this is true. You want to find something you do for fun and you want to be differentiated and have a niche. But it, the order in which that happens and the opportunity is revealed, I think, is kind of the opposite of what everyone sort of assumes it is. Yeah, I mean, riffing on that for a second, like. Um, product market fit has a way of creating passion. Like I've seen a lot of companies where like they get product market fit and the founder is really passionate and a company doesn't have product market fit and the founders aren't that passionate or then they find product market fit later and then suddenly everybody's passionate. So they, they do kind of go together. It is hard to say which came first. Um, so I think that is a very important point to bring up. Yeah. Well, I think it's, By the way, the other thing that's exciting yeah. about this sort of subscription thing, I mean, I've been, I've been very excited about the potential for this model for like local journalism or like very niche sort of things. And it's a great example where 
if you, like the geography still matters, right? Geography didn't work for a business model for newspapers once it sort of fell apart, but that's because their cost structures were way too large to sustain it. But that doesn't mean people still don't have sort of local concerns, for example. And local concerns could be geographic. They could also be on the internet, right? Covering a game, covering a particular company or something along those lines. And to me, there, there's, I, I think that, yeah, it, maybe it's a little late if you want to be a generalist tech blogger, right? I thought I was too late when I started in 2013. But I, it's very, very early for, I think, just a massive, massive number of niches. And what, what's impressive about Ben is he's always tinkering. So when he did uh, Stratechery as kind of the first real paid blog out there, a newsletter, um, he was just playing around. And then by the time other people started doing paid newsletters through Substacks, he's on to dithering where he's doing paid podcasts. And, uh, you know, kind of these serial episodic paid podcasts that are bundled with his newsletter. So there's this tinkering mentality that can kind of keep you ahead of the curve if you want to, if you're an early adopter type. Now, by the way, when I say what feels I play to you, that's just half of the the thing. That's not enough. The, the whole phrase is what feels like play to you, but looks like work to others. And all those words are deliberately chosen. Like feels, like because it's your internal feeling, like play, so it's fun, but looks because the outside person doesn't have the feel like work to them. And if it looks like work to them, then you can monetize it and it can be useful. So all four of those pieces are important in that sentence. All of those criteria have to be fulfilled for you to find something that is a worthwhile endeavor where essentially it's your hobby, but it's everybody else's vocation. It's your avocation, their vocation. And then you can outcompete them in that and, and do well and enjoy every step of the way. Like I, my sense is, for example, Ben, I listened to your podcast, your dithering podcast uh, with John Gruber. And it just sounds like you guys are just having fun. I mean, it's just like two friends chatting, right? And no one's going to compete with you on that because it's just two friends chatting about the tech industry. And they have a genuine love for the tech industry, so they're enjoying themselves. Um, so there's just, there's just no way to compete with that because you can't lose. No, I, well, this is, well, the other thing, too, you is you know, that's the ultimate differentiation that, by definition, no one can compete with is being yourself because there's only one you. So to the extent you can get to that, I think that's right. And I also love your point about feels like work to others. At, this was one of my biggest groups as like a, as a kid was I had it stuck in my head that the subjects I needed to study, whichever ones were hard for me, were the important ones. And the ones that were, were easy for me were not important at all. And so I spent my time taking classes and focusing on like majors that were very, very difficult and finally, I kind of like gave up on that halfway through college. I'm like, I'm just going to do classes that sound awesome and that I like. And then I, it, like, it, it's something like the whole world opened up to me. And, and I think it, it was a weird mindset. I don't know if that's common to people. It's simply one that I fell into that like, oh, if it's challenging, it must yeah, be this is Yeah, this is a common trap, right? Like people try to fix their weaknesses when really you want to double down your strengths. But even when you double down your strengths, you want to go to the things you're strong on and then find the hardest things in that domain and hone yourself against those so you get even stronger. Uh, so it's like if you're reading a book that's really difficult and you kind of are confused, if it's something you're interested in, you will reread it, you'll reread it, you keep going where the points until you get it. And it's the same as like when you feel soreness or pain after lifting weights, you're going to build stronger muscles. On the other hand, if it's a topic you're not interested in, you'll just wander off and, and you'll just never get anywhere on it. So I don't believe in trying to cover for your weaknesses, especially in a nonlinear world with specialization of labor where you can hire other people to cover your weaknesses or partner with other people to cover your weaknesses. So you really just want to double down on your strengths. And to do that, you always have to be at the cutting edge of your domain.
Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like there's a lot of people who want to, you know, who have a point on the map that they want to get to, and then they have to figure out how to get to there. But really, everyone should just move from where they are today, right? The I think that's what's so important about the tinkering well, thing is it's well, very incremental. Yeah, exactly. All, all three of us up here are tinkerers. Like I, you know, was early on tinkering with Twitter for philosophy. Um, you know, you, Sahil, you're tinkering with Gumroad in like the weird way that you run it. Uh, you were tinkering on the crowdfunding side. You were tinkering on rolling funds. I was tinkering on how to mechanize angel investing in VC. I was kind of opening things up with the blogs on venture hacks, and that was tinkering. Ben, you were tinkering on stratechery and dithering. Like, we're tinkerers, right? And I think most successful creators are ultimately tinkerers. They're just kind of playing around at the edges of their field on something that is interesting to them. But it's not really with some strong motive. It's play. It's not really with a motive to like create something great out of it. It's because they're they're genuinely interested. And most tinkering is wasted. It's like when your kids are playing, most of that time is you know quote unquote wasted. But once in a while, it will result in something which for a child might be a hobby, and for an adult it might be a vocation. Yeah, I think it's also inherently low status, right? I think you 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 kind of spend years not making any money. And maybe not building an audience and getting really good at a skill, but you don't have any 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 way to know if you know if that's actually going to turn into anything. Uh, the sort of turning into something is you know kind of happens all at once ten years later. Well, I think there's something too about learning how to be in your particular moment, and people get so fixed all five ten years in the future, particularly when it comes to their career. And the real danger is you end up like succeeding and then you ended up in a place that's just not very relevant or interesting or there's a ton of competition. And I look back like how I ended up what I'm doing. And God said they had the quote, you know, you look backwards, you connect the dots. Learning. I was, you know, maximizing whatever I was doing at that particular time. That's what pays off. And you see so many people get so distracted about where they want to go and they don't take full advantage of the spot that they're in. And then you look back, I was like, man, I wish I would have spent that time better because I could have really used that experience and it's already, it's already too late. You certainly don't want to plan for trying to predict too much in the future. Like, I think the worst title you can possibly have in your bio is futurist. First of all, it's just tone deaf. But when someone says futurist and it's like, ah, you know, they're trying too hard. They're trying too hard to live in the future. When Yes, you're right. Your only moment of power and knowledge is the present. You just act from the present. Um, it's not to say you shouldn't have like goals and plans and those kinds of things. It's kind of nice to have them loosely held. But if you stick too closely to them, you'll miss reality. Reality is very fluid and very complex. And it's much more about navigating from the small set of options presented to you, much more choose your own adventure style than you know top-down Soviet-style planning with five-year plans and I'm going to get to A, then B, then C. No, I think the other thing with that too, you do need a long-term goal, but that gives you a way to think about the immediate-term options, right? Like, so I have three options today that are not my long-term goal. I know the general direction I'm going, so I can choose this one that maybe is suboptimal or maybe seems further, but I'm building up a particular skill or getting a particular sort of experience that will get me closer to that long-term goal without having, yeah, like a five-year plan. I think that, that's the exact, like, the exact wrong way to go about it. Well, I, I think it's, it's what's so difficult when, you, when someone asks someone who's successful, like, why did you become successful? And it basically forces, I feel like, the person to lie because <laughs> you, you look back, connect the dots, and then you can't help but sort of believe that it was it sort of happened on purpose and that you sort of had 
you know, you, you can't remember what it was like to not know where you were going. Yeah, first I picked sperm number 3,768,412 that then routed its way to egg number 14 on the exact date of blah, blah, blah. No, so <laughs> well, it's funny. Begins. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, no, I, I, it was funny. I told this story on, on this week's Exponent exactly where it's hilarious that I'm known as the newsletter guy. I, it was a total accident where I had the, I had the vision to have a subscription base was all website-centric, and it was a total disaster. And I, I actually watched it on a Thursday. It was a total mess. I tore it all over the weekend. I told people, like, look, I just screwed up the website style for anyone that's not a subscriber. I, it's the wrong direction. I'm just going to email you. If you subscribe, I'll email you additional stuff in addition to the website. <laughs> it's like literally like a spur of the moment. I have to fix this problem, figure it out. How am I going to get content to my subscribers without having a bad experience for non-subscribers? And then now today I'm the newsletter guy. It's like so there when you look backwards, if you're actually honest about it, there's a lot of luck for sure and a lot of like just in the right but, but wait, moment taking the right choice. It's, it's funny, Angelus has a similar story because uh, first there was a network for sharing deal flow that Nivi and I built, or mostly Nivi built, called the Pound Deal Flow Network. It was literally a little social network with a feed and you could follow people and nobody used it. And then he built a Google group and nobody used that either. And then finally, we're like, screw it. We're this is not this. We're gonna just freaking email them <laughs> the data, and that was Angel List. It was actually originally Angel List plus Startup List, but then I just stuck as Angel List. Well, what was the Startup List side? It was just a list. Well, it was gonna like be Angel List. We're gonna, we, yeah, Angel List was gonna mail the angels, and Startup List we're gonna mail the startups, but we just never got around to the Startup List side. Yeah, it was. I still don't know. I can't even tell you how it happened or what worked. It just feels like a. Feels like a foreign country in a distant time. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, going back to the question of like, how do you, how do you kind of get started as a creator? I feel like we all also have that in common. Like we all started writing and putting our thoughts out there, right? And that that is sort of a universal truth. It's been true since sort of Martin Luther. Like, put your thoughts on paper and then you know distribute them. Or even better, put your thoughts in code. Write your business plan in yeah. code. Like, I, I think for every hundred companies that I have, like, seriously made an effort at starting, like, one has gotten launched. The hit rate is that low. You're just constantly trying stuff. You're just constantly iterating. Yeah, I mean, that's the other issue with asking people, you know, why they're successful is it's asking them about the one out of a hundred attempts that they made. And this is the one that ended up working. Uh, but they all looked roughly, you know, interesting at the time. Yeah, it's like you asked Da Vinci, like, how, how'd you do the Mona Lisa? <laughs> Um, and you know, there's all the other paintings or like when I make an investment, every investment I make, I'm super excited about first. I think this is the one, this is going to be the next Facebook. This is great. And then two, three years, I'm like, this is total shit. It's complete crap. Why did I do this? What a waste of money. I knew all along. And then 10 years later, some small percentages don't work out well, but you can just never tell along the way. You can only create the narrative looking backwards but to be create, to be a good creator. You just have to be creative. And creative means that you're constantly creating things. It's not like you're just creating one thing. Your creativity is who you are and what you do. You're always creating things in your domain, nonstop, constantly. And it's as you know, as David Deutsch says, it's conjecture plus criticism that dri drives science. Or Matt Ridley would say, you know, trial and error drives innovation. Or you could say that variation and selection drives ev drives evolution. These are all just variations in the same theme, which is you just try a lot of stuff. You get feedback from the world and from the market. And you see what works and you stick with what works. And that's just it. There's no, there's no shortcutting that process. The other thing too is the iteration 
like it makes you better it and it increases your differentiation because you you just get better and better at doing this particular thing and knowing what works and what doesn't and, and like you know i write a daily update every day it's like i'm way better at writing daily updates than i was before not just from a like insight perspective from having the opportunity to learn and think about stuff for a long time but just like the actual mechanical act of doing it like i know what needs to be done i know like days i'm not feeling it like, well, how do you write? Don't you have writer's block? Like, well, no, it's like, it's just what I do. And I think that's something that, that develops over time. And, and so the, it's not just the, the iteration, just the practice, but also the improvement. It, it just, yeah, nothing, nothing replaces the hard work part of it. Yeah, I would say there's most people when, when, I mean, like if I talk to a bunch of aspiring painters, if you, like there are people that I go to these painting workshops with and the last time they painted was the last painting workshop that they went to a year ago, right? And those people, gen like that's when people say they're, you know, when people complain, like there's too many people, it's too easy to get started. Most people never actually get very, very, very far. They, they don't put in a hundred hours, right? Of that 10,000, I think by the time you put in a hundred hours, most people have gone home. Maybe because they want to be painters, but they don't really love painting. They like the idea of, of being a painter. Uh, they, I mean, it's the same with books. I think people really enjoy the idea of having written a book, but the process of writing a book is quite, quite different and, and not as rewarding. And also, I think when the, you're in the tinkering phase, like you don't really know if this is going to go anywhere for, for several years, potentially. Uh, it's very hard to stick with something unless you don't have some, there's some inherent joy of doing that thing. It's really that self-directed curiosity and passion. I think everybody has it. Sometimes it gets drilled out of you or you get convinced it's in a useless domain or you're just too embarrassed to do it or you're too busy to do it. But everyone has self-directed curiosity in something. And, you know, people will joke. Some will be like, oh, yeah, mine is watching Netflix or smoking weed. But that's not entirely true. I think humans are creative. Nobody just wants to sit there and do nothing all day. It gets really boring. And so it's just kind of like not losing that streak. And I think a lot of people lose that in school. They lose it in the peer groups, maybe they lose in the drudgery of their day-to-day -day work, but you kind of want to find that thread of natural self-directed curiosity and just follow it. Everyone's curious about something. You know, if you talk to someone long enough, you'll find out, oh, this person's obsessed with like natural health foods, or that person's obsessed with workouts, or that person's obsessed with fashion, or this one's obsessed with technology, or this one's obsessed with even logistics or transportation, or, you know, what have you. But everyone has some personal curiosity and obsession that's driving them and the beauty of the internet is no matter how bizarre and strange that is there's a bunch of people out there who are really into it and probably large enough that you can form a small business or audience around it yeah yeah i think that is kind of what the creator economy is it's just like it's an on-ramp onto just self-employment and it just i think i think a lot of people you know I, i've definitely heard that sort of like the i you know the only i i don't like i like playing video games all day long how, how do i make well obviously Twitch. <laughs> There's a pretty easy answer to that one if that really is your answer. But I think most most people, um, yeah, I, I, I do think even if you, if the, I think basically, I think instead of thinking about it like work-life balance, I think the work thing throws everyone off. I think I think about it personally like creation versus consumption or like contribution versus consumption. And I think everybody, even the people who consume, generally you find that you like a certain kind of art or a movie or book. Uh, or you like working out or whatever. And like, I think it's figuring out how do you turn this into a, you know, how can you do this thing? But, in, but instead of consuming the thing as your relationship with it, you are able to create value and you're able to contribute to other people in this, in this, you know, in this vertical or this dimension.
I, yeah, I, and on the work-life balance thing, if if you feel the need, I mean, <laughs> not to get myself in trouble, but if you feel like you need to pursue work-life balance, you are not in a work that is going to lead to great creative outcomes or building this sort of business. Like, I mean, you, you it's definitely something you're obsessed with, right? I, I can't imagine wanting to sit around and watch a Netflix series instead of thinking more about the stuff that I'm working on or stuff that I'm doing. And it just seems like such a, such a bizarre waste of time to me. And that's not to say that if you're watching Netflix, that's a bad thing or that you like some people want to live a different kind of life and that's fine. I'm not saying anything about that, but this particular, like we talk about authenticity, you talk about being like mastering something like you don't, you, you obsess about it. It's like your life. And I, I just had, I had this moment last week where I had an unbelievably busy week. I got to Friday night and I was like, so pleased. I was so satisfied just because I had felt like it such a great week. I made progress in lots of places. And that my life felt very, very imbalanced at that particular moment in time. Since Ben is about to get canceled, I'll get canceled with him too. <laughs> I agree. I think the work-life balance thing is nonsense. It kind of implies that work is suffering and life is relief. And that just means you're in a bad situation to begin with. And you need to get out of that situation where you control your own life. I've been as guilty as anyone of watching Netflix and playing video games, but that was escapism from suffering. And once I sort of aligned my life with doing what I wanted to do, then I just did that for fun. And then when I don't want to do that anymore, I don't need to do high, uh, high uh, mental cog or high cognition activities like playing video games. I can just go for a walk or I can hang out with my friends or I can hang out with my kids and it's just as fulfilling. Um, so you, your work should be fun. It takes just as much effort to do well at a video game as it does to start a company. Somebody on the internet used a phrase that really stuck with me. I think it goes by Illimitable Man or something, one of these uh, inspiration accounts. But he said that um, he said that video games are shadow careers. And when I read that, at that moment, I knew video games were leaving my life because it was absolutely spot on right. I was building a career, except I was building a career in some fake land, in some fake game where the rules would change, where some 12-year-old would come along and crush me the next week. And I saw it for what it was. It was a shadow career because I wasn't putting that same effort into my main career because my main career didn't really line up with what I wanted to do. And that's why I knew I needed to make a change. So don't waste your life in these shadow careers. Even, even if you find yourself craving holidays, that means that you're not enjoying every day, that you're sort of like robbing yourself of, your, of what should be a pretty good day even like i know this is an extreme example but you eventually want to get to a point where you don't look down on mondays you don't you don't dread mondays mondays are no worse or better than any other day and so you, you that means like kind of getting away from this idea of work-life balance it's rather getting into a mode of work where that is your life and is fulfilling it's good work you enjoy it you you have to align Again, to use the old Robert Frost phrase, uh, align your vocation and your avocation. Yeah, and not to double down on getting canceled, but, uh, you know, it's easy to look at, you know, today, you know, Duvall and I are doing well and like, oh, it's easy for you to say. But like, I started Stratechery while working another full-time job. And, 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 and what I mean by that is I found it, like, this is the part where it actually, it does pay off to do something you love. I loved tech. I love thinking about tech. I love writing about tech. And so it was actually a form, like it, by work-life balance, my work was kind of drudgerous, but my life was actually what I was really obsessed about. And so that was a place where I was able to align the idea of doing what I loved in my free time. And it was able to transform in the wrong of my work. I believe me, I feel very, very fortunate about that. But this isn't an incompatible idea where if your work is drudgerous, 
that's actually all the more opportunity to figure out it, what it is you love. Because if you love it, you're not going to feel like, oh, now I'm doing two jobs. And you're like, oh, I have my work during the day and now I get to go home and do the stuff that I'm excited about. That's actually a, a, an indicator of something that you, you might be worth spending more time on. Yeah, I, I, I'm some, I have mixed feelings about the phrase, the creator economy, because I think the economy has always been the creator economy in the sense that the creative people are the ones who get to run things and get paid the most. It's just there have been very few of them. And so now what's happening is that the number of creators that we can support is broadening thanks to the Internet. So many more people can be a creator. And yeah, maybe not everyone is going to be a creator just yet, but that doesn't mean that you can't be. If you're in Clubhouse, if you've got an iPhone, if you're sitting here, if you're listening to this, just because half the world can't be creators doesn't mean that you can't be a creator. You can't be the leading wave. Entrepreneurs are creators. Um, you know, the, the best financiers are creators. Uh, obviously, artists are creators. Uh, best actors are creators. The best producers, the best directors, the best, you know, in any Cooks. endeavor... In any endeavor, yeah, if you look back in history, if you look back in history, history really remembers the artists. They're the people who are breaking new ground, who are creating new things, who are generating new ideas. In an age of infinite leverage, ideas are the most important things. Judgment is the most important thing. And so we've always been in a creator economy. It's just that there haven't been that many people who were the creators. They collected all the rewards because they were the real creators, but now many, many, many more of us get to participate in the creative act. Yeah, it reminds me of kind of the size of the firm, right? Like I just think that the average size of the firm is shrinking and it's getting closer and closer to one. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, right. certain brands look like it's a, it's a company of one, even though there may be a whole external, army yeah. behind them. Yeah, as external <laughs> transaction costs come down, thanks to things like Gumroad and the internet and Clubhouse and so on. Well, the other thing, the other thing too is uh, if you're in a job that isn't great, but whatever, it's paying the bills. You actually have this sort of weird advantage when it comes to pursuing your passion because you, you don't have the necessity of supporting yourself or supporting your family or, or whatever it might be because you, you sort of, your costs are taken care of. And so there's actually an opportunity to, you know, a lot of great businesses don't work out because they took too much money up front or because they just couldn't, like they couldn't get to that sort of break-even point because it takes a long time to build. I mean, the newsletter business is like this, right? It's a great business once you have a thousand subscribers, but getting from zero to a thousand takes time. And so there's actually an opportunity to sort of arbitrage the fact you're in a job you don't like, <laughs> in that you can spend your free time doing stuff you do like and figure out and experiment with monetization and how you're going to make that your business and such that it could be your business in five or six years. And this is, I mean, this is what I got lucky with Shachekri. It happened faster than I expected. But I started Shachekri with a five-year plan. It's like, this is going to be my job five years from now. And I was going to figure out what worked until I could get to that point. And I selected jobs that were going to give me room to do that. And so that was how I thought about like the, my day job. I want to have room so I can build this job at night. And I think that that's a that's a it gives more possibility of actually figuring out what it is that you want to do yeah i had a slightly different route which is unlike ben i can't be creative and have another job i just find like work and the drudgery of it is soul crushing i need a lot of free time to be creative so rather for me it was in my own endeavors i just drifted more and more to the creative side of the work 
and I just refused to do the non-creative work. I refused to do the drudgery. I would outsource it or decline it or I would shift away from it until I ended up doing the creative roles in, in the positions that I was in. And then people eventually realized that that was my superpower and they kind of left me alone on the other stuff. But I was not able to do the day job, night job thing because it just it just takes up too much time and I need time to be creative. I need like, like empty space in my calendar. I think like creativity... It sort of begins with an empty calendar. When you have an empty calendar, you can be creative, or at least I can be creative. And then, it, and then creativity ends with a busy and cluttered calendar because once your creativity is demonstrated, everybody wants a piece of your time, and then you fill up your calendar because all of a sudden you're popular, but now you can no longer be creative. So watch your calendar. The inverse of your calendar is your creativity. Well, this is a good example of why. You should always be careful of who you take uh, advice from <laughs> because we have like the exact opposite. Yeah, it all cancels. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Because, I mean, from my perspective, if I have nothing, if I have nothing on my calendar, it's way too easy. That's when I get lazy. Like it's like way too easy to sort of sit around. Whereas, like, I mean, the, my secret power with trajectory is four daily deadlines. Like that's what actually makes it happen, right? It's the fact that I have to get it done. And so, it's just funny that you mentioned that because I, I work in the exact opposite way. That's funny. Yeah, you get enough advice, it'll all cancel out to zero. So. Anyway, this is all meant to be inspiration. Don't take it too literally. You can't follow anybody else's path to, to success. Single player game. Yeah, I think, I mean, one other way of looking at turning your job into what you love to do is generally you have the job because there's something about it that is compelling to you. Uh, and I think a lot of it is figuring out what is that one thing that you actually like doing more than all the other stuff and then leave the company uh, and, you know, provide that single service to other companies so that you know that thing you might have only been able to do an hour a day because uh, it just you know sort of you know the diminishing returns to it uh, for that company but there are eight other companies that you could do this for and then you could build a company that just offers that service at scale and and you get better at it because that is the thing that you're doing right you have you have eight iterations per day compounding instead of one one thing I started doing that may be a, a useful hack is, and obviously you have to be in a certain position to do this, but people would ask me to do things and I would say, hey, actually that's something other people can do. So you should ask other people to do that. Ask me to do the things that only I can uniquely do. And you know, obviously it helps if you list those things, but that way you really focus on your strengths. You focus on where, where you like to work. It also helps people differentiate when to ask you things and when not to. It kind of builds your brand. Uh, and it leans into your superpower. And it's also just more enjoyable. It puts you in flow more often. Also more time efficient. Ben, do you have a to-do list? Like, do you think in terms of like, I need to get this done today, tomorrow, the week, the month? Or are you more like, these are the things I need to do now and tomorrow I will have a new set that it will, I will you know, realize by tonight? Uh, no, I try to not have any to-dos at all because I have four to-dos a week. I have four articles that I have to write every week. And basically nothing in my life should ever be so important that it becomes more important than those four things. So, I mean, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm fortunate to have folks helping me. And so that can, you know, like doing accounting and taxes and stuff like that is stuff that needs to be done. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what actually drives my business. And so that's the stuff you get other people to take care of. You, you don't want to have any mental space connected to deadlines that aren't connected to your actual output so I, I my life's entirely geared around four times a week i have to publish something and nothing else should just sort of get in the way of that and most of most of the time you're you're spending then is actually 
contributing. It is being creative. It is like producing well, I mean, something that's, towards that's, one that's of those four. Well, no, I do. I do lots of other stuff. Like there's a lot, uh, you know, I've, I'm working on a on another project. I, I do calls. I have meetings, but all this is stuff that I can drop at a moment's notice. Like I don't. None of it is something that has to be done. Like I think there's a difference between doing lots of stuff. And there's a certain mental burden that comes with something that you know you have to do, and so I think that's the bigger thing is avoiding the stuff that I have to do. And if I want to do other stuff by choice or want to be involved in other stuff, that's often very stimulating, very exciting. Like the week I had last week where I was so busy, I was doing a ton of stuff unrelated to writing. But it was you know, something I was choosing to do affirmatively as opposed to something that was a burden that I had to do. It's eliminating the have to do stuff for me that's super important. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people talk about like time management, but I think if, if you enjoy the work, if you enjoy what you actually get to do, it's not like I, no one that I've met that does that really has time management problems. I think most people who think they have time management problems have energy management problems. They're stuck doing something they really don't want to do. So they, they waste all this time. They get all, you know, distracted. They're never in flow. Uh, so they, you know, it's, it's not really a, a lack of time problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, it's miserable. And it, 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 Naval talked about this earlier. Like, and this is the hard part of having a job that you don't like is there's a lot of stuff you do have to do that you don't want to do. And that, that's how you burn out. That is like that burnout fuel is because it's sheer willpower to make yourself do something you have no desire to do. And you do just, no one has that much willpower. The thing about creativity also is that other people are not going to give you the space to be creative. Um, you're going to be most creative on your own or maybe the one good thought partner, maybe two maximum. Once you start getting past that point, you're not going to be creative anymore. It's just too hard to be creative in large groups. And other people are always going to fill up your time with, you know, well-meaning tasks that have to be done. They're not going to understand this idea that you just need like large blocks of alone time or with one partner brainstorming interesting things. Uh, or coding or writing or whatever it is. These are these are largely solitary or best pairwise activities. These are not activities that are done in large groups or meetings. And it's just the nature of most business these days that it's done very socially. People kind of work and they socialize at the same time. Like a meeting is like a cocktail party by other means, you know, with coffee instead of with cocktails. And a lot of people are just kind of, you know, sort of spending time or they're on a laptop or they're having a conversation or water cooler talk or what have you. So I just think that if you want to be creative, you have to be in either a very small organization or you have to be ruthless, downright rude about protecting your time so that you have blocks of time to do solitary or pairwise work. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the concepts in crypto that I think is so important is composability. And I think the more that you can basically sort of use that function and say, look, Gumro does one thing. And basically everything else we're outsourcing, we're outsourcing to Stripe, we're outsourcing to AWS, we're outsourcing to all of the new tools. Uh, like we should basically be doing almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, this is going to, I don't mean to drop into like 1% privilege, but I think most people are working too hard. Um, I think most people are just basically spinning wheels and spending a lot of time in make work. And the older you get, the better you get at just declining work that you know is useless like I, I have this theory that 99% of work that you do is useless. You still have to do it because it's iterating, iterating your way to the 1% that is useful. But in an ideal world, if you were omniscient, you would just cut to the 1%. Uh, so for example, 99% of the people that you went on dates with, you didn't end up marrying. So that wasn't the final answer. 99% of the stuff you learned in school, you've forgotten. You weren't really curious about it. It doesn't apply to your life anymore. 
99% of the presentations you did at work, the spreadsheets, the code that you wrote got thrown away, it didn't account for the returns. Now, of course, you had to do that to build up the expertise for the 1% that worked, or perhaps it was trial and error, you had to do it to find the 1% that worked. But as you get older, you just get better at figuring out, well, actually, instead of taking 100 shots on goal to get the one that works, I'm actually going to narrow it down so I take 10 or 20 or 30. And a lot of judgment is just knowing not what to do in the first place. The ability to say no and be correct that that was a no is a superpower. You want to be able to filter out things very efficiently, and that just comes through experience. But if you're becoming more and more experienced and you aren't filtering projects and firing customers and not pursuing certain marketing strategies and declining working with certain kinds of people and even turning away the money when it doesn't make sense. If you're not doing that, then you're not going to, then you're not going to scale properly. Um, so I, I do think that a lot of people just end up spending a lot of time in busy work and make work. We're also in this odd society where we think that, well, every degree takes four years. Isn't that a coincidence? Whether you're becoming an expert in art history or architecture or computer science or physics, it takes exactly four years. What a heck of a coincidence. Every job takes eight hours a day, five days a week, whether you're coding up the next cryptocurrency or whether you're uh, marketing something or whether you're HR or whether you're a receptionist, it takes the same amount of hours. What a coincidence. Obviously, I'm being facetious. Obviously, that's not correct. So we have these one-size-fits-all rules that don't make any sense. And yet we look around and some of the most successful people in the world, Warren Buffett, you know, that guy makes like one decision a year that matters. He spends a lot of time reading books and a lot of time playing bridge. And he's one of the richest men in the world. So it's not really about hard work. Elon Musk is working around the clock, but he's also partying hard. He's dating, he's tweeting, he's running multiple companies, he's driving cars, he's moving around, he's engaging in politics, he's getting sued by the SEC. Busy guy, where does he find the time for all this? The guy at the corner convenience store is working 80 hours a week. I don't see him being any more successful than Elon Musk or even close to that. So clearly hard work, although it's important, it's an element, it's one leg of the stool, it's probably not the most important one. And you can definitely make trade-offs as you get older and wiser about working less hard, but working more smart. It's very, very true. And especially in the age of leverage that we live in, judgment just gets magnified. One little decision magnified a thousand times, hundred thousand times, million times. That's why you see such outsized fortunes. One person decides to code up a face mash at Harvard and they become Facebook. The other one decides to code up something that you've never heard of because it was close, but not quite. It just hit number 100 in the app store for a week and then it was gone. So it's not really about hard work. It's about judgment. So hard work is important to the extent that it builds up judgment. But eventually when you have the judgment, you should be saying no all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think also over time you, you have capital, uh, right? You have credibility. You have potentially just money that you can pay people to do the work. Which is something a lot of people you you kind of I think that's sort of step yeah, one well, is that the, you have to figure right. out how to do the thing that you like to do all the time or at least make right. free the free the calendar. Well, there's the three forms of leverage and you should employ all of them. One is labor, so outsource anything that is less than your hourly rate and set your hourly rate to an aspirational level. Another is uh, capital, which is you can when you make a decision you invest capital behind it, so you multiply the force that you're exerting through free markets. And the last, of course, is through creating a product, or which could be writing, it could be a podcast, it could be a, an actual physical product, or it could be a, a piece of code that has no marginal cost of, uh, of replication. And that last form of leverage is largely permissionless in the most powerful modern form of leverage, and that's where the modern fortunes are built. The older ones were built on capital, and the oldest ones were built on labor. If you want to get rich in the 1700s or 1800s, you did it with labor.
you wanted to get rich in the 1900s, you did it with capital. You want to get rich in the 2000s, you do it with code, maybe media. Where do you think crypto like fits into this? I mean, I feel like it, 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 it you know, someone, someone had this question. So let me ask this question, which is about investing. Um, you said somewhere, apparently, that most people are going to be investors in the future, especially when full-scale AGI kicks in. That seems like maybe not something you'd say exactly, but... That's something that Balaji said, actually. It's a Balaji <laughs> quote. Um, hmm. And I'm not Balaji, but I, I think I know what he meant. He's basically saying we're going from an economy where most people are labor to where most people are capital. We're going from most people being workers to most people being investors. This trend started with a 401k. Crypto makes it even easier and you know crypto is like this giant casino in which you can invest in stocks bonds derivatives options all this venture new blockchains new protocols stuff that was traditionally closed off and only accredited sophisticated investors and now everyone can invest in it so it's sort of creating this mentality of everyone's an investor owner which is a good thing right everyone's a everyone's a laborer and everyone's a capitalist and ideally i think the highest form beyond laborer and beyond capitalist is creator everyone's a creator everyone's either creating product or they're creating code, or they're creating media, they're creating ideas, they're creating books, they're creating podcasts, they're creating YouTube, they're creating Twitch, what have you. But the creator economy in that sense is the apotheosis, it's the highest level above the labor economy, above the capitalist economy, is the creator economy. Yeah, I mean, I think even crowdfunding kind of fits into that, right? Like it's taking that idea of like DeFi, like basically I have 7,300 investors putting in $5 million instead of a single investor putting in $5 million. It's, yeah, it's you've got your fans invested aspect. in your business. Yeah, you have your fans invested in your business, which is great. These people are gonna. Uh, in fact, if you if you go onto Twitter, you'll see how people who invest in crypto apps just like promote them nonstop. So now you're gonna have seventy three hundred true <laughs> fans who are gonna be out there promoting Gumroad nonstop, and that is a formidable army. And I think, for example, if you look at Tesla, Tesla is partially the most valuable company in the world because Tesla's car owners are also shareholders and true believers in the product and they just really really push it they are that intolerant minority that works for tesla instead of against which is how most intolerant minorities tend to work yeah it's funny one of the when i started considering doing this crowdfunding round one of the like some of the feedback from the industry was like you know don't like isn't that like do you want more investors like why would you want more investors and this is kind of what people would say about the party round right like my, my general rule in venture capital is if the venture capital industry by and large hates it, you should do it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, well, are you asking why I want more people in my army than fewer? I don't get it. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's basically, uh, I think Parker Thompson had this great tweet a while back where he said, uh, every investor who invested uh, before me, sorry, inv every investor who invests after me is a spreadsheet jockey. And every investor invested before me is a dart-throwing monkey. And it's just the nature of investors that they look at people who are sort of like earlier than them or smaller than them. And they think, oh, these are just dart-throwing monkeys. They don't know what they're doing. And anyone who comes in afterwards and is more rigorous, they're like, these are just Wall Street bankers with their spreadsheets. They don't know what they're doing. And you can kind of hear this complaint in the venture business a lot. Another thing you see a lot in the venture business is people saying, oh, welcome to venture so-and-so. You're going to learn the hard way that blah, 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 right? VCs hate competition because they're selling a commodity product. Money is the ultimate commodity. It's branded by the Federal Reserve, right? Your brand doesn't matter. And so they have the hardest sales job in the world. They have to brand money. 
So, so much of it is about status and signaling and condescension and, you know, positioning and know-how and like appearing like you're in the right class. So VCs have developed a block art in sort of creating signaling and transferring status on the companies. And you kind of have to see through that as an entrepreneur. Um, and if you can see through that as an entrepreneur, you can actually get great bargains. Obviously, if you see through it incorrectly and you end up with like people in your cap table who screw you over, then you may be in trouble. You may have done a bad job. But in modern fundraising, good entrepreneurs retain control of their companies. So they don't really have to worry about that. In fact, I would argue these days it's investors who get taken advantage of much more than entrepreneurs do unlike 20 years ago when it was mostly investors taking advantage of entrepreneurs. Well, do you think crowdfunding will take off? Like, do you think this is a trend that will, like, will this become the default or will this just become, like, just more competition for VCs that will encourage, you know, like, music labels are still around. Book publishers are still around. They clearly, like, do something, right? Yeah, I, well, crowdfunding is highly, highly regulated. And because it's so regulated, it's limited. You know, it's five million bucks, no more than ten thousand dollars a person. You have to publish two years of financials. You have some liability. Like it's just really hard to pull off. So you're kind of a you're not unique as a company that can do it, but you're in a limited set of companies that's willing to go through the hassle of doing it today. And I think more and more companies will open up to do it. You know, for their one true fans. But the where the real competition is coming from is crypto. The largest angel investor base is in crypto. The largest funding base is in crypto. The market cap of crypto altogether is approaching $2 trillion. That's a lot of wealth sloshing around. There's a lot of people who recently made money in crypto that only understand crypto and they're happy to invest $100 million in some DeFi protocol that's not even launched when they wouldn't even know where to start with a YC company that's raising $2 million. So I think the real competition for venture is actually happening in crypto. There's a lot more money sloshing around than in crowdfunding. Crowdfunding will happen, and there will be more and more and more of it. But because of the artificial regulatory apparatus is slapped onto it for user protection, quote-unquote, it's going to be much more limited in size. Because crypto is resistant to the sovereign nation state because it kind of routes around and operates you know, in the gray markets, it just ends up being, even though it's crazier and frothier, it ends up being a much larger market. Is it just because it's 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 impossible to actually regulate? It just would it's impossible in that that it's very difficult to regulate without or too expensive. It. Well, it's mm. it's difficult to regulate it without scaring it overseas or destroying it locally. And if you do that, then you pass up on the fruits of it, and the fruits of it are very tantalizing. Yeah, I feel like crypto in the in twenty eleven twenty. 12 like had this market risk of like it could have been stopped i think but it you know i think it got to scale and now now nations are sort of it's at a shelling point where no, no nation is going to you know it's, it's it's kind of bigger than any nation at this point yeah it's like capitalism or technology like you can definitely squish it in your country but it will cost you a lot and it will just go somewhere else it, it, do you think it, it's as fundamental as that, right? Where it, it, it is sort of an inevitability over time as humans. Yeah, it's sort of like this was a you know, part of our evolution in a sense. Yeah, it's hard to globally describe crypto, but I think at one level, what it does is it replaces networks with markets. And so in a lot of places where we had networks of abundance, where we didn't know how to govern the abundance and we had to do it with um, you know, having a dictator or a king or a sovereign or a corporation or Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey in charge. Um, 
you know, now we have a way to do that with a distributed network where the users are in charge and there's a free market within the users to determine how the resources get allocated. And that's a very, very fundamental shift. If you can build a clubhouse or a Twitter or a Facebook or sovereign money or gold or Wall Street or a Spotify-like network and you can do it so it's run by its users, that is going to be a fundamental innovation on infrastructure and governance and it'll change the way that, you know, our society is structured. It's very powerful. It's very next generational. So you could forego that, but then you're kind of stuck in the old model of organization. It's like being stuck in, you know, some some form of communism or socialism when the rest of the world is moving to capitalism. Or it's, you know, being stuck in uh, some kind of a wall garden internet when the rest of the world is moving to an open internet. So I think the difference will just become more and more stark over time. Yeah, it's, it's like I feel like the the internet didn't really do anything to the way that we work yet. Like we still work in these nine to fives. We were still going to the, the offices, like not too different from the industrial age or era, you know. And I feel like crypto and the creator economy, like it's finally that's finally happening. Like it took we just had to get on ramp to the internet. We just kind of took everything we were doing offline online, and then the next phase is like cool. Now that we're all online, like actually a lot of these assumptions we don't need anymore. And crypto yeah, is forget- kind of the yeah, I forgot who said it. Like, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Like, it's very unevenly distributed. Like, the first phase of the internet, you had the web. Uh, or even if I go further back, like, there was a time when VCs only used to invest in hardware companies, right? Like IBM and Digital Electric Corporation and Sun Microsystems. And the idea of investing in software is ludicrous. Software, this thing has no value. You can copy it. I can't even see it. How can you sell it? So investing in a Microsoft was like a, a daring act. And then, of course, when software got normalized, people had all the values in software, then it became about, well, you can't invest in the web. You can't invest in Yahoo. That's a website. You've got to invest in software. But then it turned out that Yahoo and Google were really valuable. So the next thing comes along, people are like, well, what about this crypto? Well, there's nothing there. There's not even software. There's not even a website. It's not owned by anyone. There's nothing there. It's just a hallucination. How can you invest in the idea of a new thing called money? And then people got rich in crypto. And now the new one's coming along with NFTs. Like, that's art? That's not art. This is a signature. That's just a, that's just a hash that you own in the blockchain. That's not even a piece of art. How can you invest in that? And honestly, I'm even a little lost in that last one. But it just shows you how much more ephemeral this idea of value is getting and how each generation has to make a mental leap past the last one into where the value is coalescing. I think part of it is that, like, the next generation sees the sort of shared social myths that create the value and like the last generation doesn't. So we look at this and we don't get it because we don't see any of the activity. We don't see any of the millions of people agreeing that this thing is interesting and that enables, you know, whatever interesting behavior. That's right. The art on the wall only has value if other people who look at it think it has value. The same way Bitcoin only has value to the extent that other people out there are Bitcoiners and think and will accept it in exchange for material things and physical things in the world that we all agree has value. Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we plan to open source Gumroad completely. And it's because like the code of Gumroad should not really be valuable. It's That's not why yeah. Gumroad will Another be, way of will looking be big. At, yeah. Another way of looking at crypto is it's the business model for open source. Open source was this incredibly powerful force that upended the entire backend infrastructure in the software domain, but never had a business model that was done purely through this is free, this is abundant, go and, go and spread this. 
but now we've added a business model to open source and that's tokens. And so now we're getting the open source revolution with all of its open APIs and composability and hackability uh, and how people can just build on top of each other like Lego blocks. But now we've also attached business models to the whole thing while still miraculously somehow making it so not a single person is in charge of the whole thing. Do you think it's a, there's a way to port? Like my goal is, you know, one of the reasons Gumroad I've tried to maintain as a sort of tiny size of the firm, a one person company effectively, is sort of like allows me that ability to kind of like centralize, you know, like I'm the single point of failure and I could at some point, my hope is that I would be able to decentralize myself effectively. And then, you know, and I can do that because I'm, I'm me, I can, you know, I, I can choose what to do with my, my sovereignty. Um, is there, or, or no, I have like, there basically has to be a totally new organization that has to be built sort of from first principles in this new universe. Yeah, my guess is it'll have to be a new organization for first principles. Crypto is so weird. You know, you have to like build with wallets and private keys and tokens and, and the cryptography and the curves. And it's just so complicated. It's like, you know, you're building with Legos and they're playing Minecraft over there. It's literally a different game. <laughs> I, th I think by the time you, 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 you may end up starting a second company, uh, and by the way, this is kind of what I did with AngelList, right? AngelList is what started as a mailing list for angel investors. And then we built AngelList Venture, which was almost a completely different thing, which is sort of this backend for firms and syndicates and rolling funds. And then we spun out CoinList, which did crypto. And then we spun out AngelList Talent that did talent. But trying to build everything under one roof is really hard. So every single one of these was a new creative act within the company that then got spun out with its own leadership, its own cap table. And that's hard to do. So my guess is that it's very hard to move an organization, not just because of the uh, the people infrastructure, which is what you're finessing, but I think also because of just the design of the application. That said, Gumroad is a very, very thin thing, right? It's closer to a protocol than most applications are. Um, so it's possible that you might be able to turn it into a protocol, but I think it's just equally likely that you're going to see this jumbled mass of things out there in crypto land that don't really make any sense to you. And then one morning you're going to woke up and, they've, and they'll have coalesced in some kind of a decentralized gum road. But look, what actually protects you, and you're not going to love this, is regulations. You're operating in the fiat currency domain. So someone has to handle credit cards and wire transfers and, you know, like the normal payment infrastructure and mechanism. Uh, and that's just not going to that's not going to go into crypto. Crypto is incompatible with the legacy financial system. It, it can interface at some key points, and those key points can end up being incredibly valuable, like Coinbase is going to go public for between 50 and $100 billion, being worth more than most of the banks. But uh, those interface points are still kind of on the edges of where crypto operates. Crypto wants to operate in an all-digital, on-chain, all-crypto domain. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's also, I think that the amount of code in these universes, like what they are actually doing, what problems they're solving are very, very, very different, right? Like in crypto, I assume it's mostly around the decentralization of, the, you know, and making sure that these things actually, it's just like codifying all of these things, making these things composable, I assume it's very, 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 very difficult. Like functional programming to someone, you know, someone who hasn't done it before, it's going to look very weird. And most of the code that is written in this universe, like most of the code that we write at Gumroad is basically like fraud detection of various degrees, right? It's just basically almost everything we build is, a, is just bad actor prevention, right? Like it's just, we can't trust the people who use Gumroad enough. So we have to build passwords and two-factor authentication and payments and risk and fraud and chargebacks. And, you know, we have to protect against database manipulation and 
authentication and, and all like just so many, so many, almost all of the code is basically preventing that from happening. Whereas in crypto, that almost isn't an issue, right? Like it's sort of assumed that when you enter this world, everyone has sort of done that already. And you, you enter this new world and sort of trust, it's sort of trustless in a sense. Yeah, I mean, one of the assumptions that crypto violates is, you remember like in the old days, we would look at passwords and be like, well, passwords are horrible. Users should not have to manage passwords. Let's figure out how to get users to not manage passwords because they're, they're the worst, right? Instead, it turns out the answer is, let's let them manage private keys, <laughs> which is irrevocable bearer wallets. That is a thousand times more difficult. But it turns out if you can get a user base that can not only just manage passwords, that can manage private keys and wallets, then you can really secure the data in such a way that you can you can sort of then focus on other things. You don't have to worry about all the issues that you spend building on Gumroad because in crypto land, every user controls their own wallet that control their own data. Ah, Ben uh, is back. The baseball game is over. I am back home. Amazing. Excellent. It's amazing that things can happen. It's amazing that someone's playing baseball somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, I thought about that when I mentioned it. Like, that, actually, it's a bad thing to mention because the people get very jealous. San, San Francisco, especially south of market, is like the zombie apocalypse. There, there's like a big theatrical act going on. You know, it's like COVID Act 3. And everyone is pretending that they're caught in like this massive sweeping pandemic. It's kind of entertaining. One thing I would say, Sahil, you, you mentioned I was still listening. You mentioned that, you know, we're this far along in, in the Internet and nothing has changed yet. I think that if you look back and this happened with like electricity, I think the electricity one is actually a great one where it used to be that factories were they had one massive steam engine that ran the entire factory. And so everything in the factory would plug into like, you know, there are like these these cranks going through the whole factory and they would plug into it and they connect to it. And what happened was electricity came along and it was useful. It was great for lights and stuff along those lines, but it didn't actually really impact the production of goods until they built new factories. And that meant that the current factories had to age out. They had to depreciate, they had to break down because if it's already built, it's already built and there's a certain sort of advantage there. And I think that's very much, that happened with computers, right? There was that, 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 that article about computers everywhere except the productivity statistics, like 1987 or something like that. And, and then after that, the productivity statistics suddenly very much showed that computers were a thing. And I think it's the same thing with the internet, where things need to be reworked and rebuilt around it with sort of new assumptions. And so that's what takes time to happen. But that doesn't mean like stuff along the way, but there's other groundwork being laid. Like I think from a creator economy, like we went to this area where there was just the social networks, right? And, oh, they're taking all the value. Well, now going forward, you're not going to make money on the social networks, but social networks are a great regeneration tool, like phenomenal. And like the entire advertising ecosystem is in place for the creator economy the way it wasn't before. And so like, the, and you see this again in tech where stuff doesn't disappear. You keep sort of building on top of stuff that came before. And, and I think that that's what you're seeing with this and, and where there's been a lot of foundational work done and you never see or realize how important that is until stuff starts sort of popping off just because the, it, everything's in place. Yeah, I am seeing some fuzzy progress in the creator economy. And I would say at least so far, what I see in the creator economy is a three-step thing. Step one was in the old days, you were created on the internet, you created a website and then you hope that Google sent you some traffic, right? 
Um, on the very old days, you created a website and you just had to build your own brand and run ads and try and get traffic. But then after a while, Google started sending you traffic. And then, so there's a certain kind of creator who operates kind of a storefront or a blog somewhere on the internet. And then step two was the social networks came along and they started distributing huge amounts of links, user to user link sharing. And so then it all became about becoming a creator on social networks. The problem of being a, social, a creator on a social network is you're building your castle on sand. Tomorrow, Jack Dorsey might change the algorithm or Mark Zuckerberg decides to change his rake or Apple changes their app store fee. And now all of a sudden you're out of work or they're just taking a lot of the money. So it's very, very hard to monetize. And I think we're now kind of entering step three where you have things like Patreon and Gumroad and all kinds of monetization vehicles that are cropping up where, and you're having creator first networks. You're having networks that are all about monetized creators popping up. So I'm starting to see this trend Maybe it's too early to be a trend, but I'm starting to see this thing where the top creators are becoming relatively independent of the social networks themselves. They're monetizing outside of the social network or they're starting to build brands across social networks. Like for me, I mean, I don't really consider myself a creator. I don't really monetize, but it was very easy to cross from Twitter into Clubhouse. Like most of my Twitter following will follow me in the Clubhouse to the extent that they're in Clubhouse. And if I want to monetize, I could do it a different way. I could run ads against a podcast. I could put out a Patreon. I could put out Gumroad. So the creators are starting to kind of figure out how to have their audiences be a bit more mobile. And they're, and they're trying to figure out how to monetize separately from the platform that they're on. The platform they're on will always have a big advantage. Like when Twitter does super follow, then you know they'll have that advantage in monetizing their creators. But now, just the fact that Patreon and Gumroad and other venues exist means that Twitter has to start giving its creators a quote-unquote fair cut or has to give them the tools to monetize and then make sure that it doesn't take too much because there is competition out there, especially at the head of the curve for the top creators. Substack is obviously another huge one, right? Like the same people who can get famous on Twitter but if they want to actually make real money, then they go on a Substack and build a newsletter there. How, how do you how do you get distribution? You know, in this, if you know, step step one is sort of SEO, step two is social media, and the step three, you still are relying on the sort of yeah, you're still media. relying on social for distribution, and and in that sense, like Twitter is probably the best one because Twitter is just pure distribution, you know, simple follow graph with minimal data attached to it. Um, well, so, yes, I, you're still beholden to them for distribution. But you, you mentioned something earlier, uh, Naval, talking about, like, Tesla and how their shareholders are – they're such a powerful force for them because they're their advocates. I, I suspect, I mean, much, 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 much smaller scale, but a similar dynamic is the case for creators. Your distribution is your users, and you are – like, when you have passionate fans that love your stuff, they will tell other people. And it's interesting because – it, it's not it's much more of a linear sort of advantage not an exponential advantage because people only know so many people and so they'll exhaust the people they can tell but then those new people will know some other people and they'll tell them and to me that like yes twitter and twitter is a part of this because your fans may use twitter to talk about you but it's still really the core unit there the core driver is your supporters and that that's the sort of superpower and super distribution channel that creators have. And that is also portable. It's portable across Twitter, across Facebook, across email, uh, wherever it might be. I mean, dithering, like, how do you advertise a paid podcast? Well, it turns out you have other people who listen to podcasts or who do podcasts 
and they'll talk about it on their podcast. Oh, this happened on Dithering. And that's actually our best channel by far. Is people talking about Dithering on their podcast and the listeners of that podcast, like, okay, fine, I'll have to go check this out. So it, it pops up in all kinds of sort of interesting ways, but that's the real advantage. And like, there might, like, I've never bought a, a social media ad. I didn't mention the advertising. I think the ads are important for certain types of businesses, but the real power is that your fans can use social media so they can get free distribution to talk about your stuff. Interesting. So it's not about the creators using social media. It's about their, their one true fan type people using yep. the social media to distribute the creator's message and profile, regardless of where it is. That's, that's exactly it. And, and, and it, this has been a incredibly powerful for much longer than I think people realize it. This is the, what I didn't realize. I mean, I learned this just because I mentioned I had a five-year plan for Shechekery. And the reality is that I ended up going with the, pay, the subscription version of Shechekery within a year of launching the site because I completely underestimated and had no appreciation for how powerful social media was, not from my tweeting, but from other people tweeting my stuff. And it, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, it's funny, like back in 2017, 2018, I kind of had this idle wish that I was like, yeah, I want to build like a media empire, but I don't want to do any work at it. <laughs> like I'm too lazy. I literally just want it to happen by itself. And sure enough, somebody else compiled all the tweets into a book and they did all the work. <laughs> so the media empire kind of came around, but I just got to be authentic. And the beauty is like, as we were saying earlier, you can escape competition through authenticity. If you if you are authentic, there's no competition for you. And so we really are in a golden age of creativity, where if you are a good enough creator and you focus on your creations, other people will spread it for you. I mean, I would I, say that is I mean, almost another. Well, that, that's almost another. Oh yeah, yeah, go, oh, go. go ahead. Oh, I just want to add. I mean, uh, for what it's worth, and and I think this is useful in the context of talking about Substack. You're like, oh, well, these big guys, these popular people are taking all their, their sort of fans there. Like I started Shechekery with like less than 400 Twitter followers. So I, I, I'm always amused when people are like, oh yeah, well that worked for Ben. It's like, well, no, actually I am, it's absolutely true that you can start from nothing and make this work. Now that's not to say it's going to work for everyone. You still have to find a, a place that is a niche you can fill and you have to fill it well and you have to give people reason to share, right? People love to share stuff that reflects well on them where they feel smart for having shared it. And so that's an important dynamic. But the fact of the matter is that the ability to start from nothing exists today d without question. Oh, I think it's better today. Uh, it's much faster to build followers on Clubhouse or TikTok than it is on Twitter. Like I routinely see people like who just build huge followings on TikTok very, very quickly. So the, the new platforms are spreading faster and faster. In fact, usually... When someone becomes cynical and says, well, that's easy for you to say because you did blah, 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 or you had advantage X, Y, Z. It's like, no, you don't know what struggles we went through. We went through a tougher time. We might've started with less. And that pessimism is self-fulfilling, especially in an age where there's so many non-linear upsides floating around and you wanna take a lot of these bets and tinker and iterate until you find one that goes non-linear. The proper philosophical approach is rational optimism. You generally want to be optimistic because things can work out 100x or 1,000x on the upside, and you can only lose 1x on the downside. And you want to be rational about it so you can pick from a bevy of choices and pick the one that is most likely to succeed and sort of not fool yourself when something is not working. But pessimism is self-fulfilling. Uh, I, I love that observation because I mentioned like I, when I started Shatekri, I thought I had missed it, right? Because all the bloggers started in like 2002 or 2003. 
But actually, if you look back, the fact that anyone got traction with the blog in 2002, 2003 is a miracle. Like there was no social media. The only way you got traction was by another blog maybe picking you up and people literally putting you in their bookmark bar. And so actually, I had a huge advantage by virtue of having Twitter around when I started. But to your point, yeah, people today, if you want to start a podcast, for example, the fact that Clubhouse exists and you can actually build up a fan base that you could leverage into a podcast or and I think Clubhouse is so smart about the fact they've said they're going to focus on like figuring out greater monetization sooner rather than later. Like it, 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 it's a really great point where it's, it's not too late. It's actually better than ever. And also a 400 followers is like an insane amount of people, right? Depending on how engaged they are. Like if you spoke at an event with 400 people, that's a lot. Of, that's a big event. You know, that's something that you would fly, you know, get in a plane and fly to another city and, and you know, sleep in a hotel for, uh, you know, like I, I think people underestimate, like it's so easy to get caught up in these millions, but 400 people subscribing to your newsletter for 10 bucks a month is a living for almost and, anybody in the world. Yeah, this is classic marketing wisdom, but you want to have a small number of diehard fans and a small number of haters. What you don't want is a large number of kind of meh people who are like, yeah, sort of interested, but no one's willing to lay themselves down the line, positive or negative. Yeah, I, I think also like in the distribution, a lot of it is moving. I feel like, like Naval, you are like your own economy at this point. You are like a mini economy of, and people can kind of just do stuff and get traction like within your community that sort of is in your wake. And so I think that's another way people build distribution is they just, you know, I, I assume that sort of like Substack comment threads will be, is, are sort of kind of like the new Hacker News. Like I build my audience in, on Hacker News, ported them to Twitter. And I think a lot of people, when you know, getting started today will find the people, the creators that they really like and follow and start commenting and contributing and building relationships within these, these communities. Should we uh, ask anyone if they have questions or should we end things? What do you think of all? Is this the part where we run out of material? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I was just wanted to say, because I, I, I'm really, <laughs> I, I actually, I'm not sure about the community. Like, there's, it's funny because by not sure, I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I know there's definitely a technical community. I'm not quite sure how that materializes and, and how I personally leverage it. But I think that, but I think part of that is, that's more of a personal choice. Like this is where we were talking before people have different, different point, you know, different perspectives. I just personally don't want to put in the work to manage the community. <laughs> and like, and part of it is like my focus is again on those like four things a week. I want my mental power focused on those, but that doesn't mean that's necessarily the right way for everyone. I do think someone could be in my position and actually make a massive community out of like Shotekri fans. And I'm just totally dropping the ball doing it. And this is why you should be careful about who you listen to advice for, because some of them might be terrible at stuff. No, like but, it, but it works for you. Doing. You're 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 being authentic. And I think eventually at some point, if a community has to form, it will form naturally. People will create a Discord or they'll create some message boards somewhere else or a Slack, and they'll start doing it. And then they'll invite you in. You just kind of have to wait around long enough. As a funny aside, Ben and monetization, I have a funny history within there. And Ben, you can back me up on this. Every year... 
I read some article of yours and I email you and I, and I say, I can't believe you're only charging me 10 bucks a month for this. Find a way to charge me more <laughs> because this is worth a lot more. It's like better analysis than I would get at McKinsey or Forrester by far, even if I'd hired them as consultants. And Ben always writes back and he says, nope, I'm charging 10 bucks a month to everybody. That's my business model. and It'll break if I try and do something otherwise. So you're sticking to your guns is smart because I think there are people who would have tried by now to do tiered subscriptions, who would have tried to do consulting and all kinds of things that weren't authentic to them and would have led them astray and destroyed their creativity and not allow, not allow them to scale this beautiful core business where you just charge everybody 10 bucks a month and you got a lot of readers. Well, to be fair, I did try that at the beginning. I started out with tiered subscriptions and I was going to do consulting and I was going to do all this sort of stuff. And I got about six months in and, and I'm like, this is way too complicated. I'm way too stretched out. I just need to focus on this thing. And so I actually, you know, another example of where, yeah, people look at me now and it looks like it was all so, so great and planned out. No, I actually, this is something I had to iterate to. I had to figure it out. This is the core thing. But it, it's definitely one of those things where if you could get it to scale, like not owing anyone anything is that, I mean, that's the dream, right? Like you, like if you want to quit freedom. tomorrow because you're mad. And it's whatever, take your $10. I don't care. The moment I get someone that's like, oh, I, you know, pay what you want, and someone pays me a million dollars, like that's, that's actually a place you don't want to be if you're doing the sort of work that I'm doing. Cause you, it's not just that one, people probably overstate the, oh, I can be independent. I won't let that affect me. It probably will affect you. Two, it will affect your reputation. Like the fact that it's, it's aware that there's this possibility of people having that over you. It's going to like, if you want to have a particular impact, because my driving force is not just money. I want to have an impact. I want people to pay attention to what I say. And if you keep those priorities in mind and let them dribble down to the other stuff, then you're, you just end up in a much better spot. And again, I got a lot of subscribers, so it's easy for me to say this, right? Like, there's, so take it for what it's worth. Hey guys, uh, I heard you guys run out of content, so <laughs> I figured take advantage and ask a question. question. Yeah, we'll, we'll ask some questions, take some questions yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I want to ask a question which um, uh, some, a friend that I advised informally asked me and I didn't feel I was qualified to give a great answer. So I just want to get your gut reactions to, to this idea that they were trying to do. Um, and so it's in the NFT space and the idea is that um, you have Patreon, like you guys have mentioned, you have OnlyFans, you have all of these platforms that uh, people subscribe to um, and, and, and get access to content. And so the idea would be, is it the right time um, where NFTs have gotten now to have a similar platform, but where rather than uh, paying for a subscription, you're paying a token that gives you access. And if this um, artist or content creator that you know you bought the content you bought this token for the access to them um, uh, blows up and becomes big and all that that token you know uh, rises in value so you can actually resell it as opposed to a subscription where you can't really resell it so you can resell it and the artist can get some more uh, you know can get a portion of it and you you know you can make money out of out of it so what do you guys think of of that yeah, so what, what you're basically saying is that currently NFTs are you buy an object or the digital rights to an object from the artist, and uh, those digital rights can be resold and the artist might get a piece of it. But now you're buying access to the artist in some way, either to their future work or maybe to the artist directly, and you can resell that access token. I mean, exactly. sure, and I, and I think there are people trying this. Uh, look, the, the, the good and the bad with crypto is going through a Cambrian explosion. Every possible 
scheme you can dream of to make money <laughs> yeah. where you recombine A and B and C and stir them together mm -hmm. is being done. And it's just dizzying how fast it's moving. So the market is going to try all of these things. It strikes me as kind of a trivial improvement, honestly. Like, yes, mm -hmm. it will probably happen. It feels kind of obvious. And I, I will bet you there's at least like five different platforms working on it. Um, so I don't know if it's enough of an observation or a leap to sort of build a company around, unless you already happen to be in crypto, you're doing something adjacent and related, and you add this as a feature. Right, I would just add, would, go ahead. I would just add, go ahead. Well, the other, the other thing I would note is, um, just from a, like a creator perspective, uh, selling a token like this would be insane because the increase in value of such a token is directly correlated to your increase in value sort of as a person. And so, of course, yeah, that value, you know, that, that if you're the most famous person in the world, if you're the president of the United States, that token is priceless. But meanwhile, you, you like, have you, is that really worth it to have that token floating out in the world and you have something that you're compelled to do? I just think like, like there's a problem of like, where does the increase in value come from? It comes directly from the creator's own sort of like ownership of their own sort of time and, and value. I mean, just to get into the, the sort of specifics of that example. I mean, the, the yeah, best situation it, is royalties, right? Where you, you don't actually have to do anything anymore and you continue to get paid. But, but like Jennifer Aniston would not show, you know, the, the value of friends to her is this residual path, really, truly passive income. If she were to force to show up somewhere, like what I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't see the, the value in that. The other thing, well, the other thing too, though, where, where I do think NFTs are interesting and valuable, and I do think, you know, it's kind of a mess right now, but in, in, in the long run, there are some things that are just created once and you want to realize value from them. But I think that the creator economy, part of what's made it so fascinating right now has been the, the rise of subscriptions, which sort of align with ongoing work. And there's some creative work that is ongoing work, like what I do. And there's some creative work that is one-off work. And so I think it's great that I think both are necessary and important. And it's great that sort of both there's like paths to both to exist. Awesome. I would also be skeptical of anyone who sees NFTs now and is like, I need to start an NFT based company because yeah, exactly. The There's people solving this problem are two, two to three years into this at least. And, and those, right. those are the people who they're being rewarded for having tinkered four years ago now. Right. Right. No, all valid points. Uh, thanks. Thanks for giving your perspectives. Thank you, Felix. All right. Let's invite a few folks up and see who jumps on well if it's not in line i'll, I'll be happy to take on sahil thanks for inviting yeah, okay. naval so good to hear from you um hello hello <laughs> yeah i have a question about um when itch is in a creation state what you now think the most of and essentially meaning that you can't yet crack I don't think I really heard the question. There's some background noise. Maybe oh, I'm sorry. Else. Yeah, that's okay. Let me repeat it. Um, in your creation state, what you now think the most of and essentially can't yet crack. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't approach creativity that way. Um, it's not like there's a specific problem that I'm trying to solve my way past. 
it's more that I'm just always thinking and absorbing, walking around, learning, and then ideas will come to me. And I don't know where they come from. If I knew where they came from, then that would be pretty unique. Then maybe I could program a computer to do it and invent the AGI. But the reality is nobody knows how this stuff works. So you just kind of follow your natural intellectual curiosity. You load your brain with all kinds of problems and interesting things. Next thing you know, you're connecting things together and you're just having ideas. You're calling up your friends and your colleagues and pitching them. Most of them are nonsense. A few of them stick. You figure out how to brand them. You figure out how to execute on them. It's just like a big soup. I don't think too much about it. I don't, I don't think you can really, you can't engineer creativity. You can, you can foster the conditions for creativity. Like when the cloud is heavy with rain, you know, the, or it's, it's like a big, heavy cloud, the odds are higher it's going to rain. So for me, that is being alone or, you know, comfortable. It's kind of like not having a lot of meetings, but yet still having intellectual stimulation, having quiet time, um, going for walks. You know, something about the brain is mechanically stimulated. I think a lot of people have their best ideas on walks. Showers are good places for ideas because you're accidentally meditating. You can't do anything else and your mind's just kind of wandering freely. So I think there are positions you can put yourself in for creativity. If you have to solve a specific problem creatively, then I find that just loading it in your head before you go to sleep works well and then just giving it time to percolate. But I don't really do things that way. I kind of just, I'm always thinking about a zillion different things I'm interested in and creativity comes out it's kind of fun that way well this is it's funny because this is i think this is this area where we're just totally different people right from my perspective we are totally different people leaning in <laughs> like leaning into something and i have to figure this out and the walking does help by the way <laughs> whenever i get stuck writing i take the dog for a walk uh but for me it's like it's forcing myself into it and for sure it's the same with zone same thing with flow all those sorts of things but uh, just sort of like if, if I just sort of let myself sit around and wander, uh, no, I it like it, it's like a consistent discipline application of, of, of thinking that leads to sort of breakthroughs. Serge, do you have a question about the creator economy or anything tangentially related to it? Um, yeah, I do. I have a couple questions. Um, you know, I make treasure hunts for a living and I have to create on, um, a daily basis. And, you know, I definitely come with some roadblocks, you know, I, I try to do the lion, you know, sprint and then walk. What, what do you guys do when you hit a creative roadblock? Um, and I know you answer that with walks and exercise and, and showers and whatnot, but is there anything in addition to that that um helps contribute to getting past that creative block that wall honestly meditation is really good for me but you'd have to be a serious meditator i think for it to kind of work i wouldn't pick up meditation just to solve creative blocks but if you are a meditator you can lean into it yeah i've done a vipassana and i meditate i find that whenever i meditate i try to meditate for one hour a day and i just black out for an hour and then somehow my my day gets a lot better but I find meditation does help. Yeah, I think this, um, is, you get, this is one of those things that's, I think, probably different for every person. And, and it, it, this is, but this isn't an iterative learning that you get from being creative. This is a reason to always be working and trying to do new things because you don't just figure out the stuff that you're working on. You also figure out, like, what are the, what are the hacks? What are the things that I can do that help me get this done? And, and so the iteration like pays off in all sorts of crazy ways, not just the actual like work itself. 
Yeah, and some creativity is a solitary act, like painting. You know, you're going to do that on your own. But some of it is a group dynamic, like comedy. You're probably going to come up with better comedy skits if you have another friend to improv with. So in your case, what you're doing, it sounds like it may benefit from a thought partner or two that you're brainstorming with and kind of open-ended just being created with. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary, Six Days. It's about the making of South Park. And it's really fascinating because, like, the two key guys, they 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 do a, an episode of South Park from start to finish, from just, like, we have no idea what we're doing to shipping it to satellite production and distribution in six days flat. And the first three days are just spent brainstorming what's going to happen. And you can see through that creative process, if you watch that documentary, that it would have been impossible to pull off with just one person. So much of it is that riffing back and forth. So... It depends on the creative act, but certain kinds of creativity, I think, almost require small groups. So you may want to consider getting a partner on someone who thinks very differently than you, that but is a good, like uh, the kind of person who says yes and as opposed to no or but, and that you can just brainstorm with constantly. I mean, I think there's two ways to think about like discipline and actually doing things maybe that you don't want to do all the time. One is internally. Uh, and one is external. Like I think the internal one is your identity. Like and that generally just comes from having done it, a, you know, a bunch of times. It gives you the confidence to know that you can actually do it. You know, you could go. Anyone listening can go for it. Almost anyone I should say can go for a ten mile run tomorrow. But like most of us won't, except the people who went who have gone for a ten mile run in the last few days. Right? Uh, and, and then the other, the external one, I think, is environment. Like you just construct a sort of external environment that basically forces you to to do the thing that you want to do, right? Like you have the four dailies or you have, uh, you know, 10 bucks a month or what, whatever sort of constraint, or you have a company with employees that, you know, expect you to be there. Um, you know, you, you just figure out, okay, what do I want to do? Okay. You know, I want to paint. I want to, I want to do one plein air painting a day for an hour. Well, you know, I can get a gym buddy for painting, you know, like there's, you just have to figure out like what works for you. And if you've done it a bunch of time, the only way to know what works for you is to have done it. And then, Often you kind of know what you need to do and that really sucks because then you kind of know that like you're just you're just making up excuses to not do the actual the actual work. Yeah, there's two other hacks you could try. One is Scott Adams has a footwear theory of motivation where he says like if you want to go dancing, just put on your dancing shoes. That's the only thing you commit to. But once your dancing shoes are on, you'll follow through. Or if you want to go for a run, just put on your sneakers and go outside. But don't commit to actually running. But once you're in your running shoes and you're outside, you'll probably want to run. So you can kind of just do the first act that sort of puts you into the mood or the mindset or as a trigger. Um, so you could try that. The other thing is you could do a form of structured procrastination where if you don't feel like, let's say you're supposed to write today, journal, and you don't feel like journaling, then say, okay, today's my day. I'm going to do my taxes. This is my tax day. And you're going to sit down in front of your computer, do your tax, and you're going to hate it. You're going to be like, oh, shit, how do I avoid doing my taxes? Next thing you know, you're journaling or you're writing. So if it's like your second thing to do and there's something in front that you're supposed to do that you don't like even more, you might end up doing it. Yeah, for, I mean, for me with Gumroad, I knew I wanted to work on it for five years and I knew it was going to, you know, I wanted to work on it 40 to 60 hours a week for that five-year period. And so I raised money and that solved the, you know, that gave me the time and it also gave me, like, I needed to do this now. I raised a million bucks to solve this problem from these people uh, and this is, you know, I'm I'm going to be in this industry for a while. So like, I better actually start, you know, trying trying to turn that that money into something more. And you hire people, and then you know, hiring people, having a team, that's a great fo forcing function to to be productive.
I remember when you raised money. I was, I think that was in Phil's Coffee we met, and then uh, yeah, Phil's, yeah, Phil's Coffee. God, on, I remember uh... you were just so young. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this guy's so young, and you were so. Cocky. Yeah, I think I was eighteen. <laughs> I mean, I did have you know. You I were so I cocky. To build a billion dollar company. Right, and you were like, and I was number two at or as first employee at Pinterest, and I'm leaving to build a billion dollar company, and it's all going really well, and I was like, oh my God, he's so cocky. It's amazing. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the rational optimist. I felt like such a loser. I was like, what the hell was I doing when I was 18? <laughs> what were you doing when you were 18? How did I you was get in school? I was in school. I was in college like everybody else. I didn't have the, you know, believe it or not, even though it looks harder, the younger generation is easier. You have more venues. When I got out of school, you either went to management consulting or investment banking, or you went to an MBA program or a PhD program. There was no like jump into tech and start do startups and go to white Combinator. Those options just didn't exist. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't from the outside. I did nothing for till I was like thirty. So I mean, which I think is you know, I look back and I say, oh, I had all these amazing, interesting experiences living abroad and teaching English and stuff like that. But on the flip side, it's like, you know, it, it quite literally is not too late, right? I mean, the there's, and you can, you know, you, you can leverage that, so. Nidhi, do you have a question? Um, hi, yeah. So my question is about decentralized apps and NFTs. Uh, so I'm basically new. I've just started earning like five months back. And uh, I've been researching about NFTs as well. So uh, I'm also uh, like I create art online as well. Um, so I tried putting out my art on all of these platforms like OpenSea, Rarible and all that. But uh, I think at this stage, uh, like there are a lot of hurdles that come in the way. Like, there are a lot of... Um, yeah, there's a lot of gas prices and whatnot. So I think... Uh, is it because uh, the NFTs are uh, fairly new that there are all these hurdles or uh, what do you think will be the future of uh, uh, NFTs and will it be much easier for a creator uh, to actually put out their work there? And NFTs are not the panacea that I think all the artists hope it is. Uh, there's the, this ground cell of support for NFTs because people are like, well, this is how artists are finally going to get rich. And I'm sorry to say, I just don't think that's going to happen. Look, everything in the world is a non-fungible token. It's fungibility that's rare. Bitcoin is rare. Money is rare. The things that like we've made fungibility, fungible are largely man-made and rare. Although there's a thing in particle physics, how particles are actually fungible. We won't get into that. But almost everything you see in the man-made world is a non-fungible token. There's just an infinite amount of art. So the question is, how do you stand out? And NFT is too broad of a term. It covers an item that I pick up in a game that is in forced scarcity. It could be a piece of land in the metaverse. It could be a domain in the domain name system. Those all have enforced scarcity. But the problem is like when you get to something like just pure digital art, it does not have enforced scarcity. There's abundance. There's so much potential art out there. It's all going to be uploaded to these platforms. Every JPEG, every image, every video, every sculpture that you can imagine. So as soon as Beeple sent, sold something for $69 million and the reasons to believe that that was not like a completely legit sale that there were some you know other motives involved then everyone comes in thinking oh my art's finally going to be worth something no your art is only going to be worth something to the effect that society has already come upon a consensus that your art is worth something all nfts do is give you a way to trade the digital representation of ownership of that art as opposed to the physical ownership of that art so it is like an interesting innovation 
but the vast, 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 vast majority of art out there is not going to make any money in the NFT platforms. You still have to build a social consensus around your piece of art that then suddenly enough people believe that it has value that they will buy it or trade it or use it or own it because other people think it has value. Now, it's also going to have some intrinsic value for sure, which is just the pleasure of looking at or consuming that art. But they can get a lot of that without the NFT. The NFT part comes more into play when ownership matters. And ownership matters in a status context. And that matters in sort of this consensus belief that this particular piece of art is somehow special and will hold value in a very distinct way from the next 100 million pieces of art that have just shown up. I think art art is a an ownership of art is a is one hundred percent a status game, and so it's inherent. It's so unpredictable. It's it's very very difficult to to like to be successful at a status game because it's not up to you. It has it's like the most most you know market risk possible. It's basically other people have to all agree that this stuff that you've created that in, inherently is not valuable in any other way. You know, it's just very very difficult. If you want to build a business, you want to make a living as a creator. I think it's much better to build an audience around something that, you know, some something that you have merit, credibility. Uh, yeah, NFTs are not going to just give, give you that that part. When you have an audience, then you can take advantage of every new technology that comes out. Like every time there's a new technology, like rolling funds or crowdfunding, like it's like, cool, I have the asset that's actually difficult. I have the true non-fungible asset, which is my audience. I can't give my audience to anybody else. Even if I wanted to, it wouldn't work. Uh, and then all of these things come along and I can, I can use them with the scarce resource that I have one of, which is, you know, uh, my audience or, or Gumroad equity or, or whatever. Jamil, or Naval, did you want to add something to that? No, not really. I mean, NFT is a very complex and weird topic. I think we're all still trying to wrap our heads around some of the stuff going on there. Hey guys, uh, I had a question for Naval. Um, I happen to be a military veteran and I'm hosting a veteran hackathon over Clubhouse next weekend. Um, our judges have a background in crypto, Hasib Qureshi, and our keynote is the co-founder of Twitch, Kevin Lin. I was wondering if you'd be interested in dropping in for a couple minutes and uh, drop some gems to our veterans. That's kind of you, but I, I live an unscheduled life. I don't schedule to commit to anything, but thank you. Sure thing. No more, uh, no more asks or anything like that, please. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. I mean, my answer works on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've seen this movie I before. Did... I mean, look, so it, it, these are all good causes, and I reserve the right to drop in on any of them when they're happening, if they're open. But I just don't want it sitting like a big turd on my calendar. <laughs> so I won't uh, add any more on your plate, Naval. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for all the great work uh, that you've done been following you on YouTube and your podcasts and a lot of the information that you give out is probably some of the best life advice I've ever come across and um, in terms of the creator economy I um, feel like COVID has actually just supercharged uh, this particular aspect in the world like NFTs, uh, people working from home, people getting into art and music, and I'm pretty bullish on on this uh, cre this creator economy as such growing exponentially over the next five years, particularly in countries like 
India and Pakistan. So I really appreciate all the work you're doing. That's what I wanted to say. Thanks, Nawal. Uh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, I mean, COVID definitely accelerated a lot of tech trends. It made us all introverted for a little bit, made us all tech-driven for a little bit. Um, it's reflected in the values of the tech stocks and tech adoption. I'm kind of curious to see if we're going to have this amazing post-vaccine global coming back to you know, coming back in party, or if the health scaremongers manage to keep us all locked up for another six or twelve months with like all the scariness of circulating viruses and you know endemic coronavirus and so on. But I'm hoping we get out there and get back to the real world too, because yeah, there's true. a lot that needs to be done out there. We we can't all just sit inside and consume digital goods and create digital. Could. So eventually we'll starve or the UPS drivers will go on strike or the Postmates drivers will go on strike. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because I'm based in Australia and here the approach has been probably some of the most hardline. We've had states shutting down against each other. We needed a permit uh, to even go to cease. There was an Indian immigrant mother whose son went back to India in the middle of this COVID lockdowns. Uh, six-year-old son and couldn't come uh, and the son couldn't wouldn't be allowed back with the Australian government and the mum couldn't leave Australia because she was on a temporary visa work visa and if she left then uh, she wouldn't she feared that she'd never be able to immigrate into this country permanently so that's that's some of the I guess well, Australia's crazy... in a weird position yeah Australia's in a weird position because if you're a small island, you can just keep COVID out, as New Zealand and Taiwan and other people have demonstrated. And if you're a large country, you basically can't. It's just too hard because the borders are too large and there's too many people involved. And Australia is kind of right in the middle. It's just large enough that it'll have problems controlling the strain that breaks out internally. But it's just small enough that it potentially could. And it's an island, but it's also a continent. So I think Australia can kind of live this schizophrenic life of trying to be New Zealand or of accepting that it's Britain <laughs> or the United States. This tough spot. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, Tadira, I don't know. Tadira, let's, let's give everyone some, some time. Uh, Tadira, do you have a question? Yeah, um, thanks again. Thanks for uh, inviting me up. Um, so I kind of have like very, like two very quick questions. So I'm not sure how many you can answer between the two, but I guess if you only want to answer one, that's like totally fine. I'll just pose both of them. And if you answer both, like that's even finer. <laughs> so I guess like, I feel like a lot of people like on, on like on the stage right now are like really big, like critical thinkers. And I feel like me as myself, like I'm like a very big thinker as well. And I was just wondering like, how do you balance that with like happiness in a way? I feel like a lot of times the big, I remember when I used to be like really unhappy all the time, my parents or like, like my mentors would always be like, you think too much, you know, but like, it's easier said than done. So I was just curious, I guess my first question was like, how do you like, are you guys, do you guys just like, do you guys think you're happy? And if so, like, how do you balance like happiness with being a thinker? And then my second question, um, which I don't know why my head just went blank on it, but uh, yeah. You're thinking uh, too big. Uh, yeah. Look, intelligence plus experience equals wisdom. Not necessarily true, but play with that idea. And wisdom naturally brings peace and peace naturally brings happiness. Peace in motion is happiness. So just give it some time. I think the other thing too is figure out what you can control and what you can't. And I think there's, there's some aspect where 
I, I, a couple hours ago at this point, I talked about being in the moment and not being obsessed about your goal for like five years from now or 10 years from now. If you're obsessed about something in the future, you don't have control over that. Or if you're obsessed with something in the past, you don't have control about that. You, you always have control of your personal sort of emotional state and your, what you're thinking about, what you're obsessing about at this very moment in time. And people like shy away from that because it's kind of like, it's kind of frightening because they do like people in some respects do fear that control. And, and, and so they want to be, think about something that they don't have control over. And then you're just in a bad mental state because you're, you're, there's a disconnect between your capabilities and your obsessions. And the only place you can get a direct correlation between the two is in the here and now. And I think that to the degree you can organize your life and organize your activities so that you can be focused on what you're doing in the moment, that is, that, that's where you get satisfaction. And happiness is a, is a fleeting concept. I, you know, there's something that's more fundamental than that, where you're satisfied and you're pleased at the end of a week and you feel good about it. That's, that's the goal. That's what you want to get to. And there may be tri tribulations and troubles along the way, but you can only get to that goal if you're if you if you have alignment. Well, Demello has this great quote. He's like, if if you want to make a happy person unhappy, you just have to ask them if they're happy. Because anyone who's now thinking about if they're happy or not is sort of inherently unhappy. <laughs> they're they're no longer in that state of happiness that they may have been in. Uh, I would also say, just don't take yourself so seriously. You even started out by calling us critical thinkers, and then said you're a critical thinker. Are we really? We're just monkeys. I mean, we're just chattering. I don't think of myself as a critical thinker. I'm just a guy. I don't know if you're a critical thinker. That sounds like a big mantle to bear. That sounds like a big burden. Uh, and the more seriously you take yourself and the more seriously you take your thoughts, just kind of the less at ease you're going to be. Just sort of go through your life. Just enjoy it. If you have your health, if you have a roof over your head and you have some food, you're doing great. Everything's fine. Think all the thoughts you want. They can be entertaining. entertaining. They can be liberating. They can be optimistic. They can be pessimistic. That's a choose-your-own-adventure. Camelia. Hi, Sahil, Nivo, and Ben. Uh, my question is that I translated Nivo's tweet storm into Chinese because Chinese-speaking people, they don't have the access to Twitter and the internet wall. So what's your thoughts on the information exchange beyond the language barriers? Because uh, at the moment, people probably won't listen to the ideas and thoughts from other backgrounds and the languages. What's your thoughts on, on this movement since um, uh, AI technology may translate the people because uh, the AI technology is developing so fast and the information is so easy to uh, exchange between different nations and different countries. What's your thoughts on that? I think it'll be great when like our AirPods can translate in real time and, you know, you can walk into a foreign country and like what when someone speaks to you and you can just hear in your language what they're saying and, and vice versa. We're quite a ways away from that, but it's not forever, maybe 10 years or so. We should be able to get to a, a good version of it. Excited about that. As for like things like tweets, like the tweets that I've written, translating those into Chinese, I think is just going to translate very poorly, unfortunately. And it's no fault of the translator. It's just that 
very often when I write something on Twitter, it's not really necessarily that I'm saying some new and interesting thing. I'm just saying it in some new and interesting way. So the choice of words is extremely important. And I'm flattered that you think it you can even translate to Chinese well. But I would be skeptical because half of it is like trying to be poetry or poetic in the sense that every word is chosen carefully for a certain kind of impact. So I, I just don't know how well it will translate. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu's uh, work. And I read it, I read the Stephen Miller translation, and I thought, hey, I read the Tao Te Ching. And then I found this website, this webpage, you can Google it, that has a hundred different translations of just the first uh, chapter, the first tiny one and a half page chapter of the Tao Te Ching. And you read all 100 translations and you realize you're literally reading a hundred different books. Uh, so I'm not sure I ever actually read the Tao Te Ching. I just read Stephen Miller. So it's just very hard to translate these kinds of things. And I, I don't know how well they'll do. Certain kinds of things do translate well. Like if you're translating, you know, how to, you know, how general relativity works, for example, or how to, you know, how to operate a specific piece of machinery, the factual content there is what matters. So if there are some changes in the actual inflection or tone or choice of adjectives or balance of the words or the length of the words, it's not going to matter. But if it's going, the, the more it approaches poetry, the less translatable it is. And I don't, I don't mean this as a, as a bragging thing. I just mean it's the nature of Twitter where every word counts. So you're forced to choose very few words. So it ends up looking more like fortune cookie work or haiku or, uh, or, or what have you. Um, and so it does, just doesn't translate that well. But it, it's, it's nice of you to do it, to get it across. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. I just feel like it's um, p probably based on the individual because I read a lot of Dao Te Ching and uh, other philosophies and ancient books. So I kind of um, uh, get the meaning of what you want to try to say. But I'm not that brag my skill, but I do feel like we still need the human translation rather than AI or machine translation. No, no, I, I, translate. I, I agree. What people are going to be reading is uh, Naval and Camellia combo and not the Naval stuff, but that's fine. I mean, it, it's however the message gets across. It's interesting, right? It'll be interesting to see how it spreads. Like when people read the Bible today, I don't think they're actually reading the Bible. <laughs> they're reading lots and lots of interpretations and connections and, and photocopies and mixes and different agendas all kind of put together. They're just reading a different thing, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be read. It's still interesting. It's just a different thing. Uh, I would guess that like the transcripts from my podcast and how to get rich are going to probably translate a little bit better than the tweet storm, but by all means, give it a shot. I think it's great that you tried. And look, at the end of the day, a lot of these things I write for myself. So even as a translator, if you translate it yourself, you're going to absorb the principles better than most, and you may be able to apply them to your own life if they're helpful. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks. Guys, how are you? Uh, so I have a question. So the all creator economy is like really about individualism and like, you know, it's also true for NFTs. So my question is like, how are you thinking about like more of a collective value, right? Like if you're thinking about NFTs and earlier Naval mentioned that, um, you know, uh, artists are looking to get rich right now with NFTs and stuff like that, but like vast majority of them won't. And like, it's known that like, you know, in the artist community and generally there's a lot of like, um, thoughts about collab uh, kind of like socialism things that are more collaborative like what are the what are these like the collaborative aspects and like the 
collaboration aspects um, with this kind of uh, new world of creators, uh, money, uh, collaboration and stuff like that? That's kind of my question. I think one thing, uh, someone someone did send me a message during this conversation noting that uh, it's not a clubhouse room unless there's a mention of NFTs. And I think that there is an aspect here where talking about NFTs in the context of creation is like talking about credit cards. And it's like, what, I'm not sure, like, yeah, okay, I can understand credit cards are great. My biz, personal business runs on credit cards, but that's not what my business is about. Like, that, like that's sort of like a, a means to an end. Like what, what the creative economy is about is about your audience and it's about your fans. And, and to the extent that an NFT is way to, to monetize that connection, great. It's the same as a credit card in that perspective. But I think that is something that, you know, the creative economy, the, the, the means don't matter. It's, it's a, the connection between the creator and their fans. And that creator, of course, could be multiple people. It could be a collective. Like, there's lots of ways to be creative. But at the end of the day, the big picture is about that connection. And everything sort of flows from that. I'm unfortunately going to need to bounce soon. So I've got maybe one or two more questions in me. And then I got to go. It sounds good. Yeah, we can end with can Riley I, and then Toro. Technical question. You can ask your question after Riley. Riley, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, no, way off topic, but Naval, could you elaborate on the similarities between Buddhism and the simulation? Uh, if not, could you tweet it or blog it at some point, maybe? Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I used to have this framework in my head, and I've forgotten most of it, but just to give you some, uh, you know, concepts, like... In Buddhism, it's basically the idea is that we're all kind of one unified awareness. It's non-duality. And we sort of are separated into these individual pieces um, for entertainment value. So the same way you could argue in simulation theory that there's sort of like one program that's running and we're all just individual programs within that. Um, in a simulation like a game, you would have multiple lives, multiple characters. You know, you could just like continue the game. That would be similar to having multiple lives in, in Buddhism. Um, I had a bunch of others. I, I had the whole framework written out at one point, but I never tweeted it because it's so esoteric and so bizarre. And I think simulation theory is just religion by another name. It's like unfalsifiable anyway, and it's not really going to change your life because you just replace God with the concept of a programmer um, who's, you know, equally uh, opaque. So I, I just don't find it that fruitful of a line to pursue. Um, but there's also, for example, in Buddhism, there's this concept of awakening where you awaken from the game and you, uh, you get enlightened and then you don't, you realize everything is sort of meaningless and you don't care anymore. Um, the same way in a game, if you get a cheat code and you sort of win the game, or if you just decide you don't want to play the game anymore because you have the cheat code or you're tired of the game, then as a game character, you're kind of done and the game becomes uninteresting. Um, so there, there's, there's a bunch of different parallels. It's not quite a one-to-one -one mapping. This is an analogy, obviously not like a, uh, an isomorphism, um, but it's just fun to think about. It's one, it's one of those late night philosophical musings that I think will just confuse most people. But thanks for asking. I'm glad somebody cares. I, if you're interested in this topic, by the way, I would direct you to Jed McKenna. Just read everything Jed McKenna ever wrote and you, you're going to get your fill on this stuff. Toro, time for your technical question. Yeah. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi, Sal. Hi, Naval. Hi, Ben. So I would like to ask something. So uh, when I was working on a product or music or a book or something like that, I was always uh, 
find a way to deliver in doing your right, categorizing the stuff or subtasking stuff. And it's easier to deliver that product when you ask right questions or do them in right tasking. But the creative uh, in this logic, I lack uh, creativity. What's the solution of that? Well, I would say creativity is asking the right questions. So I mean, that that's kind of, that that's a satisfying. So answer. when when you put the subtasks, when you do that subtask that you you haven't known before, you using your rationality, right? But when you do the product itself, there is a lack of creativity because you th you overthink rationally and you have to switch back and forth but it's very hard to switch back and forth from rational person to creative person you know ben do you do you split up the work like do you have a part where you're kind of like the creative person and you you do you do the creative part maybe that's the writing phase or the ideation phase and then there's the editing which is maybe more kind of scientific or how do you think is there like that two-step process or is it just one, I mean, one thing to no, you? No, it's kind of hard to answer without sounding like, I mean, the reality is, is that I've been sort of thinking about tech and how stuff fits together for like 20 years now, right? And so when I write something out, it's because it's a fully formed sort of thought in my head. So the, so the, 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 a lot of the pushing around, the dog walking is forming that thought. And it's like, it's no different than coding, right? Where you, you have to sort of construct the logic in your head. And then the actual typing out of words is a very small part of, or, or functions is a very small part of the job. It's just substantiating the structure in your head to, for me, writing an essay is no different. I, I have to, I have to form that structure and then put it out. And that's then actually my, my editing is actually very, it's just copy. It's just copy editing. Uh, but that works for me. I'm not saying that's, I don't know that's generalizable to other folks. That's just how it works from my perspective. Naval, do you have multiple steps or is it, it feels like atomic for you? Like you, you just produce. Yeah, we, we, we're startup guys. So we do a lot of jobs. So most of them are creative side. You have to deliver something beautiful, something creative, something different. On the other side, you have to deliver that product. You have to be rational and you have to have certain tasks and you have to subtask them too. So divide the job. So when you switch back and forth to creative person to rational person, it's very hard, you know, it's, it's not so easy, you know? Yeah. I don't really think of creativity as a group process. I have a hard time being creative with groups. And for me personally, um, because I kind of honed my teeth on Twitter over the last few years, although I've sort of stopped doing it, I probably should get back into it, but I'm just not inspired these days on it. Um, Twitter forces you to go under 280 characters and originally under 140. That used to be the real art, getting under 140 characters. And when you hone something to under 140 characters, it builds kind of a Lego block. It's a building block that you can then use for your thought patterns later. So a lot of what I get credit for these days is just me reassembling my own tweets as Lego blocks into new structures on the fly. But that's the beauty of having very short maxims, aphorisms, and axioms. Kat, you're bringing us home with the last question. Thank you so much for bringing me up. Um, hi, everybody. 
Naval, I initially um, learned about you through the Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, from then on, um, I just followed your um, interviews and podcasts. And it's been uh, re really great for me to just like learn about and follow a lot of things that you said, specifically in this culture of hustling and everyone just putting a lot of pressure on us and just have someone that, you know, talks about uh, about mindfulness and meditation and the important importance of like being alone and spending some time together. It's not about working too hard. It's been really, really helpful for me personally and about reading the books too, you know, um, help me like, you don't have to constantly read one book like from the beginning to the end and sometimes we get stuck. So um, you brought up a really good point. Thank you so much. I just have a question which is kind of, I needed an advice from you guys. Um, it's regarding an idea that I have for a phone application. Um, I don't have any background in UX, UI design or coding at all. Um, I talked to a few people that are kind of in the industry and kind of verified it that it's pretty much not, not a bad idea. And uh, my initial step was to just basically uh, little money, um, kind of get it out there. Because for me initially it was just to get this idea out of my head. And, and when I talked to my friends um, who are in the especially the design UX UI game, what I got is that I'm being bombarded with all this idea that if it's a good idea or not bad, you, you don't, you don't want to put less money in it and have a very amateur, not a good design and then whatever coding because initially your product's going to be out there and it's really not going to be worth anything. It's not going to be good. So you really need to have uh, a very good designer do it and, and someone offered me to do it but they, they wanted to share in it and I'm pretty much very confused because I don't even understand why would they like how do they know it's going to be even something that they initially want to share in it um, and then and then they're talking like big money like 50k 60k to get the coding done and all that and I, I was just confused because my initial thing was just a little money maybe like you know I have friends abroad they could do it for me maybe yeah, can you can you hurry up with a question sorry because I I do want to. No, I, I think I think I, I think I get the gist of it. Sorry, so, sorry, I'm getting. No, no, it's all okay. It's all right. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so thank you for the kind words. Uh, I, I would look. I could be nice to you and make you feel good and kind of give you the wrong answer, or I can save you the time in the future and the pain and give you what I think is the right answer. So I'm I'm not, I'm not a pull punches kind of person. So I'm just going to give you what I think is the right answer. Startups are the Olympics of technology. You're getting the absolute best and brightest people in the world who've been training their entire lives, just like Olympic athletes, and they move to Silicon Valley, and they dedicate their lives to their craft, and they work day and night. These are some of the smartest people in the world, and they build apps, and they compete on a winner-take-all playing field where the number one wins everything, the number two gets like a little something, and the number three just completely loses. So you don't show up in the app game to build any kind of a serious app unless you're going all in with an A-class team. And so that is the formidable structure of this industry because the winning solution can literally make a billion dollars. And because of that, there's no room for the second place and there's no room for half-hearted efforts. So even $50,000 is not going to get you a great app. If, you want to, if you're passionate about a great app, if you have an app idea that you really care about and you want to see this thing succeed, you're going to need the best people in the world to work with you. And those people are often working on their own projects and they're often not even hireable. No amount of money can hire them. They have to come on as co-founders. They have to be just as passionate as you and they have to be incredibly skilled. And why would they want to work with you? Even ideas are not that, are not that 
rare. Ideas are actually quite common. It's the execution of the ideas, it's the details of how those ideas are implemented that really make the whole difference. So I think you're in for a very formidable task. If you're really keen on doing this app, then it's not a money problem, it's a people problem. Even uh, I think you're in LA, that's kind of the wrong place to be. You'd have to come to Silicon Valley, you'd have to track down the top, top, top athletes in the space. You'd have to convince them to work with you. You'd have to convince them that they should keep you on board. You'd have to convince them to spend their time into it and the money will materialize. And the amount of money that will eventually materialize if it's a good idea and it's a good team is on the order of million, millions of dollars. You cannot build a great prototype by outsourcing it for tens of thousands of dollars overseas. Not unless you just happen to get incredibly lucky and you yourself are an incredible product designer who will sit there and watch every pixel and push it in the right place because you've done that thing a hundred times before over a decade. So unfortunately, this is not a game for amateurs. And I don't say that to dissuade you or to discourage you or to make you feel bad. I, I, I'm trying to state it factually. One way to think about it is when people say, I have an idea, do you have a tech team to do it? It's kind of like someone saying, I, it's like if I were to say, I have an idea for a book, do you have an author? Do you have someone to write it? The, 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 the value is in the writing, the difficulties in the creation and every detail in that creation matters a lot. So you've picked yourself a big task. I think what you may be better off doing is trying to find out first is if there's anyone else who's already done this or is doing it or is close to it. You have to find the best team possible that might be working on it. And then you somehow have to persuade them to involve you. But it's a, it's a difficult task. The idea alone is 1% of it, I'm, I'm afraid. Thank you so much. I've got a, a lot of baseless ideas. This was actually perfect. I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, just to add a little bit onto the Olympics ideas, there there is probably a team that's already started on that idea that may be number one. And often, like for most people, it's better to to join that number one rocket ship than to try to compete with them. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Ben, any closing thoughts before we call it done? I mean, it was, I agree with Naval, uh, but it's interesting to think about that in the context of like the creator economy and, and all this sort of idea. Like, we spent a lot, a lot of time tonight talking about all these opportunities, right? But I think that there is something in Naval's answer that gets to the bit about authenticity, which is if the manifestation of your idea is an application, it, you either like, it's hard to start if you don't if you can't code i mean the manifestation of your idea is a book or a blog it's hard to start if you can't write and there is and this is i think uh something an opportunity particularly when you're younger to develop skills to develop capabilities so that when you have the idea you can take advantage of it and that doesn't mean you're doomed if you don't there are other ways to sort of work around it maybe join up with folks but it does get harder and uh, this idea of sort of like maximizing your, always be preparing so that when the, when the idea does come, you can sort of seize it. Yeah, I, don't, I hate crushing people's dreams. So, and I don't want to do it unfairly. So Kat, if you're out there somewhere in the audience, you can just email me and I, I'm happy to kind of help you think through it further and not in like a, a glib context, but like in a, you know, how should you spend your money and time kind of way, you can guess my email. It's actually very guessable. Take a couple of guesses. Awesome. Well, that was that was fun. Uh, I'm glad it happened at one in the morning. <laughs> uh, that was 
more expected than uh than you might think but uh awesome let's uh let's end the room and we'll do this again later at some point in the future thanks for maybe. uh organizing maybe. Style. maybe. <laughs> yeah don't schedule thanks ben we'll for see. joining us spontaneously yeah, thanks, as great. creator number one yeah <laughs> all right take care everybody good night yeah